Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 49. We are one episode away from what Marvel Comics would call a milestone and have like a 50-issue spectacular with foil cover and holographic little sticker. <laughs> really blow it out. And, you know, only in episode issues 25, 1, and 50 can anything happen with a plot in a Marvel Comics series. That's not how it is here on the Skullcast. We have big shit all the time. It's kind of a weird episode for us. Lots of schedule conflicts between me and Griff. Uh, he's got his wedding stuff going on and work, and uh, so he wasn't able to make it today. I was barely able to make it, but we reconvened to talk about Volume 9 and our reread project. It is a beefy one. You know, I keep saying that, but I think from here on out, I don't know what it is. I think it might be kind of a snowball process from how we approach these rereads, but they've evolved into this big monster uh, in terms of how much time it takes us to go through that. And that's not a bad thing for readers. It's just know that it's going to take us longer and longer, I think, as we keep going, uh, the way we're approaching it. We don't skip around too much anymore. I think we're pretty comprehensive. I mean, I say that now and we'll probably double the length in the future. It just seem, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to a longer, more detailed uh, show on these rereads. So we will get going. Volume 9, you know, I want to start with a cover as usual. It's an interesting one. I like it because it's an action shot. Kind of kind of graceful. Kind of like a, you know, it's all, 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 all the motion is being applied by the limbs that are there. And yeah, even the, the cape, the roots, everything. I think it's very stylized, you know, I mean, generally. Totally. And, uh, you know, still that's red eyes accentuating, <laughs> making a yeah. little, making him look a, a little more evil than he actually is. He, he, looks very, he looks very sinister in this shot. You know, his arms are like some kind of, I don't know, some kind of insect, you know. It's very, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what's that, what, what is it about him, but uh, I find him very sinister, you know, like some kind of oriental demon. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's – um. The color tone as well also does that, you know, putting it, it's a, it's a night yeah. shot, so they have the green and blue colors there. And then the, the elongation of his arms, or at least the the appearance of them being elongated with the blades, it all yeah. lends to it being a big, you know, fluid motion. It's kind of neat. Yeah, while Guts has a warmer colors, you know, like Silat is only in green and, you know, when Guts is in red and he has his armor. I actually find the armor to be very detailed on that cover, you know? Oh, well, sure, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's the debut of his, you know, post-Falcon's patchwork armor, where it looks like he kind of, I mean, I could be wrong, but it looks like he assembled it from multiple things. And there's a, there's a motif of the, the um, you know, the, the steel plates being segmented or, or yeah. layered on, both in the arms, the padding on the shoulders and on the legs, yeah. but... It still appears like a patchwork to me, so. Yeah. And that, uh, say so that layering, the way it's assembled, it, uh, it always strongly reminded me of a samurai armor, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Particularly the, um, the shoulder, the way it, yeah. the flap thing, I don't know what to call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, um, volume nine is a pretty special volume, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, for me, I mean, it represents the turning point in the series, one of the biggest turning points in the series uh, in terms of, setting the stage for the eclipse, you know, his Griffith's imprisonment and his crippling. This was a very, um, I think it was one of the more powerful moments in the series for me because I've said it before, but I've dipped my toe into, you know, many series over the years, anime, TV, books, movies, whatever. But 
it's like I, I felt like I was looking for a story that would evolve and they wouldn't keep coming back to kind of an equilibrium. Like most shows or books or TV series, they kind of set a pace and they keep to that pace. And while there are actions and consequences, things tend to return to normal. You know, there's a normal layer to a lot of these series. Uh, and it's kind of a cheap way to keep the series, uh, I guess, open to people. They don't have to keep, you know, getting back up to speed on what's what it, what has happened. So there's like a, you know, there's a layer of normalcy to a lot of series. But Berserk, you know, this is a series, that, particularly in this volume, where actions have consequences and things don't return to a status quo. You know, there's no equilibrium where big events happen and then they can return to some kind of median state. Things are yeah. constantly evolving. Uh, characters change and they don't change back. You know, there's no, there's no death of a character and the return of a character, that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's a, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty, I mean, it sounds, the way I'm describing it, it sounds like, well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't a series approach it like that? But it doesn't. I mean, it's pretty unique in that regard, I think. Why is it also the fact that I think you you are you know maybe consciously or not you're comparing it to the the American comic book industry yeah, where totally. where you know like the default thing is very you know it's it's a longer discussion but it's this series where the author is not a proprietary of uh, the work and so they are going on forever and forever you know actually the debate could quite simply be like how many years has it been that you know Iron Man and Superman and Spider-Man, you know, everything's still going on, you know, and this mm -hmm. series should have died a, a long time ago. And, uh, and, and because of the way they're structured, yeah, these things keep going on. Of course, they've rebooted them a number of times, but the thing is, like you say, this, it's a bit like, you know, TV series where, you know, uh, the traditional format is, you know, episodic things where, you know, you know, something happens, but at the end, it's all back to normal. And the next episode, you know, will start and, you know, it's still the same status quo, you know, and there's never a change to the status quo. Whereas, you know, nowadays, the storytelling style has moved on to do things that are a bit more dynamic. And I think Berserk illustrates this, you know, pretty well because... Well, it's very, you know, there are times where the, the pace slows down, you know, uh, and Mira takes the time to show things, explain things like even in 24. And there are times where it gets very dense and very fast and there's a lot of shit happening at the same time. And I think volume nine is, uh, specifically in that regard, a lot of things happen in volume nine, you know, like it's like it crystallizes a lot of things. You know, and, you know, boom, there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know, and, uh, well, as we'll see, you know, as we do this podcast. Sure. Uh, you know, the first thing we see when we open up the volume, we have a kind of a, I mean, I don't even know what to call these. It's kind of like an insert page of Griffith, you know, uh, clutching himself after uh, being with Charlotte. And obviously it's, it's underscoring the fact that he was not just wounded, but, you know, emotionally scarred by his defeat. Yeah. Uh, with, with guts. And it kind of gives us a dark insight into where his mind is in this point. Uh, and we'll see it again, of course, in the volume. But it kind of, you know, these kind of set the tone. I think Azil mentioned that last time. Uh, these kind of set the tone for what's what's ahead in the volume. But yeah. we also have another insert page for the actual episode for uh, the Skull Knight, which in my edition is called the Knight of Skeleton. <laughs> but uh, it's this fantastic image, which you know, if you've ever visited SkullNight.net's main page, you've seen it a couple different times. You know, I have it splashed on the main page. I have it splashed on the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. For a while, it was the top part of the forum, and I mean, there's a reason. I mean, it's a, first of all, it's just a pretty cool kind of all-encompassing image. You know, if you really look at the details here, which I don't know if I know many fans have posted about it before, but 
to get into it, obviously you have the Behirat poking out, resembling kind of the eggshell that we'll see later on in Volume 12 after the Eclipse. And you have the the thorned rose, the symbol of the Skullmite shield. Uh, it has the one eye missing, uh, the right or right eye missing, which, you know, of course, alludes to guts. The one eye that's there has an apostle pupil. Uh, and of course the skull itself represents or could represent, you know, the skull knight. So it's all sort of there, just intertwined. Uh, and I don't necessarily think it's saying anything, uh, about the, you know, intermingling of these themes. It's really just kind of a, a big, you know, canvas on which all these other elements kind of play out. It's just interesting. Well, you know, I think, uh, first off, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that this is quite, Unique for the series, you know, like this is the only time we get a page like this. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it denotes how important like this episode specifically is, you know, for the series as a whole. And, uh, you know, I, I do think like that the association of the skull and the behirate have, uh, or the say it's meant to foreshadow something. And as we know, you know, the skull knight has a specific relationship with Behrith, and, uh, and and I think it's meant to foreshadow it, which you know I, I think goes to show that Mira really does think things through in in advance, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's meaning you know anything very specific, you know, aside from the association of the two, and otherwise it's just you know a cool visual you know representation. Right. I think when I first saw this, I was trying to draw meaning from it, as in, like, you know, theorizing based on the image. But obviously, it's more of a thematic thing. Yeah, and, yeah uh, I agree. Than, than it is, you know, any real true meaning can be drawn from it. But, yeah. you know, the, the, as you said, the timing of its placement in this volume is very interesting. Looking back, you know, retroactively to this series, thinking about what that image must have meant to people that were watching or who were reviewing it in the moment. Of course, these insert pages likely weren't in the uh, pre-published Young Animal editions. They were probably oh, only in the know, volume editions. Oh, no? I think, you know, actually, I think this one, I can't be sure because I haven't seen the Young Animal, but I think it was in it. You know, really? I think it, yeah, I think it must have been because that's a title page, you know, that's the ones that I don't see the episode title. So that's true, know, but those—I mean, I've seen those move around a little bit before. I, I don't know. It is—it's unique. I, I'd uh, have to look at the actual episode to be one hundred percent sure. Yeah, it, it's true. It's true. But uh, I don't know. Actually, I'm curious now that you've mentioned it. I'm curious to know. But yeah, uh, yeah I think you know, it's always not just a, a title page. You know, like yeah. there's, there's this insert card. You know, at the beginning of each volume, but. This one is very specific to this episode, so I think it's more than just an illustration. You know, I think right. it's part. What I mean is, that I think it's it's meant to be part of the story. You know what I mean? It's not just you know some illustration in between episodes. It's part of that episode, and it implies something about you know the story and the characters in it. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's a given because we already have the separate title image of Griffith, so it's it's by itself a separate image, sure. But anyway. We'll we'll get into it. Uh, it starts off. I think it's the night of the night after the duel. I can't remember if it's the day after or the night. I think it's the night of the duel. Uh, and guts well, is anxious. Go ahead. No, I just going to say we don't know. I don't think we are told exactly, but uh, yeah, guts reflects on how you know he's not used to being alone at night. So I I expect I would expect you know that it's uh, the first night you know after he's gone. Right, and he's anxious about being alone for the first time and. I'm assuming yeah. more, more than three years or so. And he's also kind of reflects on, uh, you know, the weight of his choice that he'd made. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, he's re- talking, thinking about his, his friends and, 
all the things that he'd left, it kind of underlines the fact that escaping that, um, I guess the yoke of being part of Griffith was difficult for him. You know, he's second guessing his decision for a moment. Yeah. Why? Well, and. It's one thing we see him do actually, you know, recurringly, you know, he's, uh, how to say, second guessing his choices and, you know, reflecting on, on the fact on what he lost, you know, on how he might have not realized what he had before, you know. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, tells the readers that, I mean, it was a courageous decision, you know, the others couldn't make that choice. And of course he was driven to do it, but le- the others had less incentive to want to leave the group, but he, the incentive and the courage to to step out on his own. Yeah, there's a, you know there's there's one thing I love about this. You know, is uh, the ambience of it. You know, like it's you know the way it starts with some ambient shots of the forest. You know, there's the the moon. You know, the owl and who guts is alone. You know, you see a shot of him. You know, alone by the firewood, mm-hmm. and he's you know he's a bit on edge because he has been you know. He hasn't been around in a long time. And when he starts reflecting, you know, on these things, you know, as a reader, you know, you lose yourself in the reflection he has, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, when he has this, you know, wake up call, you know, when he feels something, you know, I, I, you know, I get the feeling like you're pulled in with guts into his inner, you know, monologue. And so you have the same surprise as he does when he get, gets out of it. Yeah, it actually it visually draws you in because the, the the shots start, you know, it, it kind of goes into his head as it gets closer to him to the frame. Yeah. And also just before we transition away from this, uh, you know, not only does Gut second guess his decision, he realizes that when he set out it wasn't of his own volition, you know. Griffith had had laid that seed for yeah. him to leave, you know. Like he wanted to be independent from Griffith, but he acknowledges that Griffith essentially instilled that desire to leave. So he st- he realizes he's part of something. Yeah, of course, and that yeah. he has been, you know, like, you know, ironically, he has. It's the influence of Griffiths that made him wish to leave that same influence. Right. Now he has a little encounter here. The first thing we see here is fog, kind of uh, emitting from you know deeper in the forest, and then we have this massive, imposing shadow coming from. Uh, somewhere behind him and he senses it first uh it's unclear if it actually if the sound effects we're seeing are for effect or if he actually hears something but you know either way yeah. he grabs he grabs his sword sensing something i think yeah he's just him you know sensing you know that something you know perceiving something supernatural you know behind him maybe you know just instinct or something like that well i think it's specific though that the sensation he gets is, is he compares it to what he felt with zod yeah and I think it's, you know, we've seen this before. I don't think we've commented on it too much on the podcast before, but it's an interesting kind of atmosphere or a, a feeling that, that humans sense when they're around apostles. It, it paralyzes them a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, it's not just the visage of an apostle. I think it's the presence of the supernatural elements that Yeah, does exactly, that. yeah. Yeah, and yeah so, I agree. And so in here he feels it because, I'm, I'm presuming, Skull Knight himself is supernatural, and, and that's why he gets this sensation it's weird though the way the the scene is framed and, and what happens on the following pages. It's like the Skull Knight is testing him, but yeah. I also wonder. I also wonder if that's all in Gut's mind and it's it's his mere perception of what this feeling is. If he's just threatened by it and he's reacting to it, or do you think the Skull Knight truly is sneaking up behind him and striking him? You know, that, you know it's, it's it's a weird thing. 
You know, I, actually, it's it's funny because uh, I had the exact same you know thought you know when I when I you know read the episode you know wondering whether this kind is actually testing him or if it's all in his mind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, it's a bit of both, but there's one shot that to me implies that the Skullknight is indeed uh, playing some games with him. You know, when you see, you know, like, you know, just after the page where, you know, Gus feels like something is swinging at him, you know, and he in turn, you know, turns back and, and you know, slashes in the, in the air, you see a shot of, you know, some fog, you know, Mm. Could say, you know, like some branches and some fog, you know, going out. You know, you know right. what I mean. It's regressing, and, yeah. That's yeah, what... and, and so I, I feel like this implies that, uh, along with the sound effect, that there was actually some somebody, and that you know they retreated very fast, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you know, Guts then sees you know the skull, you know, coming out. You know, so I don't know. That's was what I feel, but uh... no, I think you're right. I think that panel itself is very revealing about the actual action of the scene because it's it kind of leaves a trail essentially of where he went after he slashed so or got slashed so yeah i like the uh the first shot we see of him just the skull emerging from the darkness is fucking fantastic and you know and immediately we get guts reaction to what must be a terrifying you know thing for for him to see this yeah. you know just imagine and uh, his his character design is slightly different it actually seems a little more creepy to me yeah, maybe, maybe it's because I'm not so used to it. Uh, but it, it looks so it looks a little un- more unfamiliar to Skull Knight fans, of course. But it, it's different. Uh, the spikes are more withdrawn around his shoulders. It, it's not super important to note these details because it doesn't have any significance. I think he just, I think Mira just altered his character design over time. Is all it is. But yeah, yeah. it's just interesting to, to to point it out. But again, I don't think it has any meaning or anything. But yeah, and you know, one thing about Guts is that. Like you said, you know, we can see what, while, you know, he's, you know, not playing mind games with him, but we can see that Guts is very, you know, it's a bit the same stuff that we've, we've thought, you know, there's shots of him, you know, sweating, shots mm-hmm. of, you know, say him, you know, sw- swallowing his saliva, you know, his eye being, you know, di- you know, say wide open. So we, we can tell, you know, he's very, very nervous. And then there's this, you know, skeleton you know figure emerging you know from the from the fog you know so it's it's all very you know very creepy oh yeah absolutely the whole scene you know of course we've already set up it being him alone at night you know surrounded by yeah. darkness and silence and then this skull knight armor guy comes out of the, of the <laughs> fog and you know but guts is sitting there ready to fight of course it's not that kind of scene but oh you know I think we've discussed this scene before uh, in the Skull Knight things, so I, I will I'll be brief on that what he actually says. But obviously, he's giving a warning to Guts or an omen about what's ahead with the Eclipse. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is he uses some specific language, and uh, I'm not going to use it because I don't have a great translation in front of me at the moment. But you know, he talks about Guts being the one surviving. You know, perhaps it's possible you can survive uh, if you stand with a broken sword. Well, what he, you know, he uses a, a specific, friend, you know, wording, you know, you know, which is that of uh, struggling and uh, right. being a struggler. And that's a theme, you know, the Skull Knight has called him like that for, well, it starts with Zen, but, you know, he keeps calling him like that, you know, throughout the series. And the fact, I think that's what he saw in Guts, you know, the fact he's not only some somebody strong, but someone that doesn't give up, you know, that even in the face of overwhelming adversity will... You know, keep you know going, keep fighting, and 
And I think, yeah, that's, that's, uh, to me, that's one of the more important words, you know, in, in his speech, you know, his, uh, struggler, you know, which is Mogakumono in, uh, in Japanese. Not, not just struggler, but he seems to have terms for all the major players here. You know, as you said, Guts is the struggler. The God Hand are the beings without flesh and Griffith is the would be king who yeah. is a part of you. You know, but he doesn't use names in any of this. He doesn't say Griffith or the God Hand. <laughs> he, he talks very loosely about all these big things. Well, you know, he's being, you know, ominously prophetic, which is, I think, what Mura was going for, you know. I, I think in this uh, way, it's a bit funny to compare him to Void, you know, in that they use very old you know, terms and, you know, even the name of Skull Knight, you know, the, the Japanese word for skull that he used for the Skull Knight is, is very specific, you know. And so I think he's meant to, to, to speak like that and to be like that, to be obscure and, you know, and so he gives him, uh, an omen, you know, a prophecy, if, if you will, but it's not something that's very clear to guts, you know. Right. And, uh, well, he, you know, that's just the way, you know, he plays right into the character, you know, essentially. And just for those that don't remember or don't know, the particular wording that Miura chose for the Skull Knight's name, uh, the skull part means weathered skull, like an old or weathered skull, not simply just, you know, the, this, this, this skull itself, but it's a descriptor, a descriptor for the skull that he chose. So it's yeah. interesting. It, which can imply, you know, like right from, right from that, you know, it already implies, you know, several things which, can be either that the Skull Knight is very old, you know, that it's weathered the years, but also that he might have been through a lot of things, you know. So yeah. it's uh yeah, it's interesting because it already says a lot about the character with just, you know, the title of the episode you already know. And also, yeah, I mean, now that you bring up the weather part, it is really interesting to note that his armor is not pristine. You know, you can see little chinks in it, and uh, it's not, you know, in perfect condition. It, it, you can tell already he's been through quite a bit. I mean... It's interesting to note that Mira did detail his armor in that way. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on in this scene is the timing of it, you know, why he chooses to approach Guts at this moment. You know, he starts the conversation essentially by saying that the gears have been turning, uh, noting yeah. that Guts is apart from the Falcons now. He's out on his own, as if that's a key trigger. Uh, of course, it is, a, it is a key trigger in the events that are going to transpire. But it's as if Skull Knight had some pre-knowledge of how things would roll out. The fact that Guts is apart is the beginning of that. And yeah. Well, I think he's been, you know, very simply, he's been watching things, you know, events. And uh, I think he knows, you know. Well, actually, yeah, it's interesting because it implies he has say, some kind of, you know, it's much like Zod, you know. Like they know something's been going on and they have some insight into it that we are not necessarily privy to. But, uh yeah, he, he, he can tell, you know. Maybe it's, you know, the fact Guts defeated Griffiths, maybe it's something else, but he knows that, you know, like, you know, the, the way down, you know, things are on the way down. And, you know, when they reach the, the, the bottom, you know, that's when the eclipse will be. Right. Uh, of course, you know, Guts, while he is smart, he doesn't, of course, catch all the little things that Skull Knight's throwing at him. Uh, I mean, I, I think only the most astute readers can catch a lot of it. But, you know, the, the scene ends with him almost mid-sentence as he kind of wanders away talking about, you know, only he who survives, struggles with a broken sword, perhaps. And then he, you know, vanishes into the night, leaving Guts rather confused about the whole affair. Uh, transitions immediately to Wyndham on a stormy well, night. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I like that Gus wonders if it was all, you know, like if it was real or not. 
and oh, yeah, sure. he sees he sees that you know that hoof you know print on the ground and you know that's why he knows that it was real so i i like that that fact you know the way like it was so surreal he actually doubts whether he hallucinated or not but uh you know by seeing it on the ground he knows you know the guy was here and that you know it wasn't just you know some hallucination right and he has transition is pretty cool you know with like that you know mira does it a lot actually in this volume and in uh you know, also volumes around that time, you know, that, you know, you know, slow, you know, moving on and, you know, we see the skies and, you know, the rain and, you know, it transitioned to the rain on Wyndham and the, you know, rain outside of the window of Charlotte's room. It also implies some distance, you know, because the different atmospheric conditions in one area and one to the other. It's just a small detail, but it's obviously, it is a, it is a neat, I like the slightly diagonal slice that Mira uses when he transitions like that. It's a recurring you know, uh, element in his design for paneling, for transitioning. Yeah. You know, even even now, I think he uses the same technique. Uh, yeah, still, yeah, he still does. Anyway, it's uh, Charlotte uh, kind of uh, talking about, talking to her maidservants about, you know, being gloomy about what's happened, you know, all the different tragedies that have happened to her family and the court in the past couple, I guess, weeks. Uh, and She's startled by Griffith knocking on the door, uh, his face lit by a lightning bolt for a moment. Yeah. He has climbed the tree to to see her and asks to come in. What's interesting is, you know, the readers know this, but it's worth parsing out, uh, you know, why he chooses to do this now, why he chooses to be so forward with her now. Uh, there's a couple of reasons, but I mean, the, the most straightforward one is, I think it's his way of trying to get over his defeat with a kind of sure thing to yeah. to re- reaffirm his path towards where he's headed because it must have shattered his confidence, you know, among a number of other things. His uh, It gives us also a, a look into his his emotional state in this moment because you get these, these glimpses of his face. And, of course, he's kind of playing with her or, you know, flirting with her as the scene starts. But as she well, throws himself uh, you know, into his – go ahead. I was just going to say, the thing is, you know, when the, that lighting bolt, you know, lights his face, he looks really down, actually. Like, he looks, he looks sad. Of course. You know, really very sad. And, you know, I have to wonder, actually, if that's, you know, you know, I don't think at that point it's him playing a role. You know, I think he's genuinely feeling, you know, pr- pretty down. So, you know, like you say, you know, going to see her is to reinforce his confidence and all that. And yeah, I think in that specific shot, you know, it's he's not playing a role. He it's sure. how he really feels. What I meant by that was a couple the next page you see him like smiling with and laughing with her about kind yeah. of coming in. It sure is it's sorry it's hard to keep my balance on this tree, that kind of stuff. He's yeah he's playing nice, but he's what? he's gloomy, you know. Yeah, and there's you know, I, I would say that there's actually a couple of, you know, how to say, you know, even comic relief panel, you know, when you see, you know, Charlotte, you know, would say sliding, itching towards the window, opening it, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, those little comments, you, like you say, you know, it's, uh, it's almost, you know, yeah, it's, it's almost comedic to me, you know? Yeah. And she, you know, it's interesting also to look at, she's very forward as well. Of course, Griffith is, you know, being, going really, really, you know, <laughs> out of his way to, I'm not using the right wording, but he's taking a risk here. Uh, yeah. what he's doing. And we, we already know that because of what happens ultimately, but he's being extremely forward, but instead of, you know, 
shying away from him being forward, she throws himself, herself into his yeah. chest. You know? you know, that's actually that's the thing I was wondering is because you know, he he came to her then, but you know, I don't think he actually necessarily planned to sleep with her at that at that point. You know, but the mm-hmm. thing is, she she pours her heart to him. You know. Uh, you know, essentially revealing that he loves him, she loves him, and, uh, she's just, you know, scared, you know, she's a scared little bird. And, you know, all the while you see, he's got this very cold look, you know, like he, he looks, you know, cold, like he's just calculating something. You know, there's a panel of him, the, the one where he kisses her, where he's mm-hmm. just, you know, looking like he doesn't give a shit essentially. But, you know, I think that's when he makes a decision. Like he came there to, how to say, reassures himself, but, you know, then he takes a decision. To move forward and moving forward is, you know, sleeping with her. So, you know, I, I think her earnestness and the way she reveals that she's actually, you know, helplessly in love with him, that, you know, played a part in, you know, that decision of, you know, going forward, you know, always moving up, you know, I would say moving on from his defeat against, you know, guts and, you know, uh, sleeping with her. Right. It is also interesting how vulnerable she is in this moment that the, the timing of this happens because she is recovering emotionally from uh everything that's happened and griffith happens to come in at the right moment uh, yeah, where she is vulnerable and she hasn't seen him for a while uh yeah. you know one-on-one for i don't know a yeah. year a long time well not a, not a, not a year no, a not a year but since you know before the battle you know for Dordre, so right you know yeah. actually since the battle before the battle you know against adam which you know then you know you know, they had this council and stuff, and then the battle for Dodri. So I don't know. I guess you know it, it probably was a, a few months. You know, at yeah. least a few months, three to four months, I'd say at the very least. So, so that's quite a while. So, about the scene itself, uh, you know, she initially starts to say no, but you know, quickly well, becomes seduced. Yeah, by him. I, I would, I would say, you know. It's it's also pretty abrupt the way he kisses her and you know starts you know like you know and I think the the scene conveys it you know like you know there's that shot of his eye she's you know a bit you know she looks puzzled and bam he kisses her so and yeah like you say after that she starts resisting he also doesn't even you know like he kisses her then she takes a, like she takes a breath you know and he kisses her right right you know right away again so yeah. he's being pretty you know forceful I'd say you know. Actually, yeah, there is a panel that's interesting right after he gets that, you know, that look, determined look in his eye. You can actually see he clutches her tightly and then she reacts to that and then he kisses her. So, yeah, there's some uh, – a series of things that happened leading up to the kiss that she noticed that he got – became serious all of a sudden, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, she quickly becomes seduced by him and uh, what's interesting about this whole thing is, you know, he doesn't – I wouldn't call it – it's not rape, but he is taking advantage of her situation. Yeah. You know, and, and he pushes the scenario beyond where it normally would have played out. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way I'd, I'd word it, you know, is that he takes control and he, he's not – he doesn't leave her a choice, you know. And she's uh, she's both afraid, you know, and goes too fast for her. But at the same time, she's not really unwilling and she she doesn't, you know, like resist. But it's clearly, you know – I don't know how to say it, but he's clearly moving too fast for her. But at the same time, she's excited. She kind of, you know, she, she's not really against it. But it's, she's also not, you know, you, you can tell that's not how she would have, you know, done things if she had, you know, could have had a, her way. So it's a very specific scene in that regard because it's a bit, I don't know how to say, it's uh, ambiguous, you know. Mm. No, I, I think it's it's quite simply, you know, she is in love with him. 
But as you said, this is not how she intended it to play out. And, but of course she's not going to turn it down because she is in love with him. So, yeah. And of the other reason, other thing is, you know, she, she does, you know, she doesn't go out like super hardcore trying to stop, but you know, he, he kind of pushes her onto the bed, you know? Yeah. He, 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 not just emotionally, he also physically, you know, keeps her there. Uh, in, in a way that it, obviously it worked, you know, so yeah. within a panel, they are, I also has this, you know, this, this awesome line, you know, take all the yeah. frightening and sad things and cast yeah, what, them into the fire. What a line. Yeah, what, what he tells her. Yeah. It's, it's pretty smooth. You know, I mean, he's playing it, you know, pretty well. And so she, she, yeah, she's seduced. I also like the texture here. Uh, we get it a lot more as we go on, but the look of, Griffith's face, that the hair falling down the way it is, the, the he's he's dripping onto her, you know, yeah. from the from the rain. It's all very textured. It's interesting that yeah, it's very physical. You know, like you mm-hmm. can you can almost feel like you're there. You know, in a way. Yeah, there's a and then we'll get into that as well. But there's a lot of that happening in this scene, which is interesting. It's it's the word is sensual. It's uh, yeah. implying sense with all these different uh, visual elements. Uh, and, you know, and eventually they are fully disrobed, going at it, and then the translate transition to uh, the Falcons that are in a bar and they're wondering about. Uh, yeah, they're kind of wallowing in the aftermath as well. They're they're both they're all recovering from guts leaving, and yeah. Griffith being defeated as well. Yeah, it's funny because you know you you can notice that once again Casca is standing a bit apart from the rest. You know, she's distant and you know quiet. And, uh, yeah, I was wondering where Griffith is. You know, I actually love, you know, I, lo- I love that scene. You know, I love the, the way it cuts to, to them, you know, with the pouring rain, you know, which, you know, implies, you know, I don't know, some kind of sullenness maybe. And Casca's look, you know, and, uh, and the way she goes into Gus's room and grabs and holds his broken sword, you know, to her face. You know, I, I think that's a point where you can tell for sure that she's in love with Guts, you know? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. The, and, and, you know, especially the fact they're wondering where Griffith is. You know, but, you know, what she actually does is go to Gus's room and hold his sword, you know. And I think that's, yeah, that's a, a very definite moment. And I, f- I find it very touching, actually. Yeah, it, it's clear where her mind is. It's not on Griffith, so sure. Regarding the rain, just a random nerd thing is that uh, Kurosawa always used rain for big events. Uh, turning points, rain would happen. And so I wonder if it's beyond just Kurosawa to more of a narrative thing in general, you know, maybe it's not specific to him, but just in general to use rain as a heightened moment kind of thing. Well, I think it's uh, it's very symbolic of, you know, generally symbolic of sadness, for example, you know, sullenness, that kind of thing, you know, and uh, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I think here it plays a, it plays a role. Yeah. It implies, sure. you know, that things are happening, heavy things, you know, right. at least that's all. I think it helps convey that. Right. Uh, into the love scene itself. I have a lot of respect for, uh, this art style that, uh, Mira eventually, uh, this, the scene slowly evolves into this, like, heightened realism. Yeah. Uh, uh, the limbs become more elongated. You see, it's a, it's kind of a blurred effect on a lot of the motion. And, and not, not merely to convey emotion, uh, or, or motion, but it also conveys emotion. Yeah. And, uh, this become the art becomes more intense. Their their limbs become blurred together. Yeah, uh, this, I th- go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I, I think it also succeeds as you know, showing some sort of eroticism. You know, mm-hmm. like you know the way you know Charles' face, you know, holding her hair in her hands. 
you know, the way Griffith and her, you know, their bodies are, how to say, entwined, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's, uh, it's pretty effective. And, uh, Mura managed to make it, I don't know, you know, he managed to make it very effective while at the same time, you know, not showing, you know, too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not gratuitous, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but he also uses this technique in volume 18 a little bit. The way, like I said, shapes become elongated and, and kind of exaggerated. I think it's supposed to be conveying kind of the state of mind of being in a sexual and kind of like the state of mind of ecstasy. Everything's heightened. Perception yeah. of forms are exaggerated. Yeah, there's, there's, there's focus, you know, like focus on Charles' mouth, you know, and you can see mm-hmm. like, you know, steam coming out of it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, of course it's very, you know, how to say, uh, it's exaggerated. It's heightened. Yeah, it, it's exaggerated, but it's very effective at conveying what, you know, the passion of the scene, you know. Right. And, uh, and of course Griffiths is, you know, he's got this, you know, cold look on his face. You know, I, I like that. There's a shot of him, you know, you see his hair and the beard hanging down and his eyes like, feels like it's unmoving, you know. And he's right. thinking of, you know, Guts, you know, line as he left. And there's a shot of, you know, the scar on his shoulder, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's clear where his his state of mind is. It's not here. Yeah. And also, it's also underscores that, of course, is, you know, this reflection of her in his in his eye. Yeah. And, you know, it's like he's looking at that, but he's not there himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, you know, like, which is actually incredible because, you know, even though Charlotte is, you know, passionate and he's, you know, Going at her, you know, like you, you can see he's almost violent, you know. He has this, mm, you yeah. know, shot her reacting, you know. You can tell he's, you know, he's not, you know, kidding around, you know. I was going to say he's not fucking around, but I guess he is. <laughs> but you know, and uh, all the while, yeah, he's thinking of, you know, guts living, and like you says, it with this reflection in his eye, it conveys exactly that that he's there, but he's not there. And uh, yeah, I think it's very effective in showing, you know, uh, how to say where his set of mind is. Sure. Then and it, it cuts, all yeah. it climaxes with this, you know, layered one-shot page of Griffith and Hertz. Layered because you see, you know, different forms here a layer on top of each other. Yeah, uh, as if they're, you know, org- as if she or he are orgasming, as you know, she's experiencing the full force of one thousand years of sexual prowess <laughs> in in bed. It's a cool shot. Yeah, I like the sweat or implied sweat. You know flying from her arched body. It's just a really cool image. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's also meant to convey, you know, her orgasm, actually, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we cut again to, you know, back to Casca. For a moment, it's 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 a strange uh, one panel, a, a one-off, mostly to show that she's, you know, she is uh, presumably thinking about guts. Yeah. During this time as well. Looking but out the window at the rain. Yeah, we just see her for one or two panels. It's just, it's just a strange transition, but either way, you know, it c- cuts back to uh, the maid seeing through them in the keyhole, which, you know, of all things, this is truly what sets things in motion. There may have been a, a moment where Griffith could have could have gotten away with this, but this nosy maid had to come and snoop and then fucking rat off to somebody, you know? Yeah, and actually, you know, it's interesting. Well, I just want to say first that I actually really, really like, you know, that shot of the maid, you know, how to say, her eye through the keyhole Mm -hmm. and then what she sees through the hole. I think it's great. You know, I think it's really amazing. You know, it's just some, those little shots, you know, but I really like it, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, actually it's very, you know, 
they come actually you know when the king comes later on you know in the volume to 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 see charlotte you know you can see the other maids you know commenting on the fact you know like you know it seems to imply from what they say that you know they are more loyal to charlotte than to the king and that had it been any other maid and not this one they would probably have kept it to themselves you know to protect yeah. the princess and so yeah it goes to show that this is you know these events are preordained uh, and you know they are meant to happen like that and they're happening like that you know like for a reason so yeah it's really it's just bad luck you know and griff's part he has that you know has been lucky his whole life, you know, to get to that point, and now his luck has turned, and you know, he's just fucked. Right. And there's one more thing I want to say about about this is that you can see in that shot, uh, you know, we had talked about it in a previous podcast actually, but you can see statues on the wall and on each side of the door, you know, when the <laughs> maid goes in the corridor, and and these are you know Greco-Roman uh, statues. And, okay. uh, you know, it's a small detail, but I think it's interesting because it, uh, it implies a relationship with the previous empire, you know, the history of, you know, the world and, uh, Geyseric's, you know, empire because, you know, uh, as we know, the royal family of Midland is, you know, uh, supposedly, you know, uh, descendants of Geyseric. And, uh, and yeah, this is a small connection, but, you know, it's a connection nevertheless. So I find it interesting to point it out. We also noted last volume about the statues on the wall in the ballroom, and we yeah. actually – or I picked out two just at random and commented on them. One was holding a shield and one was holding a staff. We actually see those exact two in this shot with the maid. So there's a recurrence here of these statues. They aren't just one-off appearances of you know random saints or heroes from the past. Amira kind of has like a an established you know character set for these people because they're re- reappearing. Yeah. There's the guy holding a shield and, the, and the guy in the robes, presumably a priest of the Holy See or something like that, holding a staff. Well, I, so don't it's, think, I don't think there was a Holy See at the time, you know. Oh, I don't know. The Holy See probably been around for a couple hundred years, I would guess. Yeah, but, uh, you know, given the style of these guys, you know, like I said, Greco-Roman in, in style and stuff, sure. I, I think it's uh, it's from before that, you know. Okay. Well, it's just my thought, but, you know, yeah, I, I think it's uh, from uh, an earlier time. Probably. I, I was just latching on a Holy See because I don't know what else to call someone in robes from Berserk's history. I don't really have a name for it. Well, it could be a, a sage or, I don't know, a wise man. Hey, a wise man, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't choose that word. You're not random. Uh-huh. His head looks pretty small, though. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well. So morning comes. And actually, we see morning coming in the scene before. Uh, as the maid's leaving, we see sun kind of creeping up over the mountains. Uh, yeah. And that's when Griffith is, you know, obviously focused on his defeat, te- tears in his eyes, clutching at his scar. Yeah. You know, I actually, you know, I have, you know, something interesting to say about that is, you know, we see that famous shot. Yeah. Griffith, you know, he's, he's not sleeping. He's just remembering and stuff, crying. But, you know, that, that scar, you know, Gut Sword never actually touched, touched, you know, Griffith. So I always wonder. I wondered about that. Yeah. We, we yeah. talked about that last time. I wonder, I wondered actually. If you're, yeah, as you say, if that's if the visualization there is for other readers' notice, or if it was like a bruise, if it kind of touched down a little bit. But yeah, if you look at the scene in Volume Eight, it doesn't look like he touched. Grip. Yeah, he he stopped before touching it. So I yeah. actually I've thought about it over the years. I I think there's two two measures, you know, two possibilities. Either it's a bruise, so but I don't really know how it could be possible. Or it's actually Griffiths that. You know, might have you know actually scratched himself to the point where there's a, you know actual you know. He's made a scar by just, you know, scratching that part, you know. You know, it's a bit like when he was in the lake after Ganon. 
he sure. clutches, you know, himself so hard. He actually, you know, I don't know, he wounded himself, you know. So I wonder if it's not the same thing here, where you see him, you know, like there's a point where he's, you know, his end is crisped, you know, on that part. And I, I wonder if he actually didn't, you know, obsess over it so much that he scratched himself. So yeah, I don't just know. A small it's weird. Detail. I've never really thought about it this much before. I always, <laughs> I always in my head kind of assumed it was a bruise. We talked about last time about how Griffith drops his sword immediately, as if yeah. it was connected to the blow on the shoulder, as if it was a reaction to he dropped his sword. So I, I think there's some yeah. precedent for there being impact, but just not very much impact, you know? Yeah, I don't know because his claws are not, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not damaged. So yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know, but. I like the idea, though. I like the idea of it not being a physical scar, but it being something for the readers to to note. You know, it's kind of like Miro drawing attention to it for us. Like this is what he's feeling. This is what this he's, he's clutching. I like the idea of that. Yeah. Anyway, Charlotte wakes up alone, uh, sees that Griffith had left in the middle of the night, uh, finds the lodestone. Uh, Actually, you know, I'm not sure he left in the middle of the night because we see him. You know. Like, we see him right after that, you know, so I think he's left, like, not long ago before she wakes up, you know? No, well, yeah, of course. I, I, I mentioned that the, we see the sun coming up over the mountains, and that's when he left. By middle of night, I meant during, you know, the night or morning, whatever. Yeah. He, le- right. he left. She's not there. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. She wakes up alone, you know, but yeah. uh, he was still enough of a gentleman, even though he actually didn't really care about her. He was enough of a gentleman, or at least playing the part that, uh, yeah, he he put the lodestone she'd given him back along with uh, a lily of the valley, you know, which, yeah, uh, yeah, that's enough to, you know, how to say, it's romantic enough to uh, enamore or even more to to him, you know. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I, I failed to note that he had left that for her. It wasn't that she was finding her own lodestone. He's returning the one, as you said, that yeah. she had loaned, loaned him before the campaign. So yeah, yeah that's a nice, that's a nice touch. And she knows his blood on the sheets, and she actually has a comical reaction to it, as if she wasn't quite sure what it was, or maybe well, she yeah. immediately realizes what it is. You know? No, yeah, she, she's you know, I find it funny that first she she realizes that she's sore, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, he was, uh, so gentle with her. And then, yeah, she, she's, you know, curious at the blood and she's a bit, yeah, there's a, that funny shot of, and actually it's funny because it also foreshadows what's to come, you know, right after. Of course, so. yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Griffith immediately being, you know, captured or surrounded by guards as, as if they had a, you know, as if they were tipped off to maybe yeah. it was an interloper leaving Charlotte's, you know, place, you know. Yeah, I actually find his capture interesting. You know, the fact we don't see his face, you know, when he leaves the castle, you know, there's, a, there's you know, Jose Anfazis yeah. on his feet. His face is turned, you know, we see his face, you know, turned and then his eye and he sees the soldiers and then you see his face as he's surrounded. So I find it interesting. I think it reinforces the impression that he's very cold and detached about what he did with Charlotte, you know, and, uh, like like a guy playing poker, you know, it was just a, a bid, you know, a bet on his part, but nothing more. No, I, I, that's, that's one of the things I was going to say was as he steps over that little, you know, uh, bridge or whatever, sorry, gate and lands, he, he considers his actions for a moment as an ellipsis there. And then he solemnly turns away from it, you know, as if, you know, as if suddenly justified by what he did in his head, you know, he second guesses himself or at least considers his actions before he turns away from them to leave and then he's captured. So there's a little bit of, you know, 
we get a little bit in his headspace by the mere reflection of him uh, of what had happened that night. Yeah, I don't know. You know yeah, I don't know. I I never, you know, what to say. I didn't interpret that as being so, you know, how to say, as him reflecting so much about it, you know, like just, you know, considering it, you know, briefly and then, you know, turning around. But, uh, yeah, why not? I think the fact that we don't see his face, it just looks very serious about it. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know how to how to word it, but it it, it seemed to me like for a moment he was second, not second guessing, but I don't know, thinking about the weight of his actions. And then he turns, it kind of has a resolute turn before he sees He's been captured, you know. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I can, you know, I agree in any case that he was reflecting on what he did and that, yeah, he was being pretty, you know, very serious and, you know, detached and resolute, you know. I think I could be wrong. This is the first time we see the Imperial Guards. They have a different uh, uniform or helmet. Yeah, style. I think. Yeah, the, yeah, I think it's the first time we see the the palace or castle guards or, or whatever. But yeah, I think it's uh, the first time. Yeah, there's the guys, you know. Well, maybe uh, I I should check, but maybe the guys who were with the king, Joseph mm. and Charlotte, you know, in Volume mm. Five, may, maybe yeah. they were also. But uh, yeah. Either way, you know, these are different from you know the army's troops or the the Midlands Guard. It's, this is you know kind of like the police force of the of Wyndham. I'm assuming basically those that protect the royal houses and the royalty. Yeah, there's you know there's one thing I I like when he's captured is that um, you are underlines the fact he doesn't have a sword. You know, Griffiths yeah. wishes for his sword and uh, he's not there because it broke during his duel with Guts. And you know, yeah, I think it's it's pretty you know hard to say. You know, it's pretty cool, you know, it underlines, you know, how everything, you know, fits perfectly, but, you know, not to his advantage, you know, and the same right. goes with the, the blood and, you know, shots bed earlier, such a thing. And, you know, I, I like the, the last shot of, uh, you see the, the shafts of the Alberts, you know, all in black surrounding him, you know, they are just silhouetted and, uh, his cold face. I, I really like that shot. Sure. It's a, it's a stylized interpretation of what's happening, but it also, you know, emphasizes him being imprisoned. You know, he's captured the way it's yeah. all drawn up like that. So sure. Uh, yeah, we mentioned this before, but when the king arrives on the scene, he's being kind of, uh, walked through what happened by the head maid, head maid servant, head, whatever she is. He, she's kind of downplaying the event, you know, like yeah. she's telling, she's telling him to back off for a moment to maybe consider that maybe this wasn't what happened. You know, she was an inexperienced maid. So. Yeah. You know, I, I like the fact, it feels like the king is rushing, you know, mm-hmm. and they are trying to, like, slow him down, turn him back, but, you know, he just bursts in the room, you know, so, yeah, I, I kind of like that, and, yeah, like I said, it's, it, you know, earlier, it's just, you know, it feels like, you know, any other maid would have, you know, kept quiet, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, this one thing that, you know, got, you know, to make this, you know, like that. Right. Uh, Charlotte, you know, immediately is uh, embarrassed that her dad is in a room for a number of reasons. First, you know, obviously she just had sex in the room, but I think yeah. she's also trying. She's doing her best to hide what is on yeah. the sheets. You know, she's you know, clutching it tightly. I actually, I like that she tries to play it cool. You know, she's like, "Oh, you shouldn't mm-hmm. behave like that," you know. But of course, he doesn't have any of it. He sees a mark on her neck, and you know, mm-hmm. and the water on the floor, and you know, there's this shot on his eye. You know, that mm-hmm. I, I really like, you know, that I think is, you know, that's the point where we we start getting a hint of, you know, the madness, you know, hiding beneath the surface, you know. 
And then there's that shot where he lifts the the sheets, you know, the bed sheets very dramatically, you know. I, I find, you know, I like this whole scene is pretty cool for that reason, you know, the way it all uh, Jose and uh, unveiled, you know. Right. Yeah. The look on his face is 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 fascinating to consider. Like, he knows at that moment that first of all that it's true, and that's like the the, the illuminating moment for him. But also, you know, what does that mean for him that his his daughter, his yeah. light, his warmth has been, you know. <laughs> Taken yeah. by somebody else, you know. And the way it's done is, it's very dramatic, you know, like mm-hmm. the shot, him lifting the, like, like the sheets, you know, her with her arms outstretched and the, there's the, the stains, you know, on the white background and then her, you know, the stains in front of her and, you know, she's, you know, on the white background. She looks like she's been caught red-handed literally and, you know, the king is, you know, the, the last shot of the episode, the king's face, you know, mm-hmm. looks yeah, this, transfixed. The, the shot of him bursting in the doors, it is the last shot of him looking relatively like a normal king. It is yeah. – from from here on out, he is basically a monster. You know, the way he's portrayed, yeah. the way he's drawn, the lighting, the shading, his his contorted face, all the things, you know, lead to him not being a sympathetic character as things continue. Yeah. I actually have a, have a comment for, you know, there's a, the shot after in the prison where – I just mentioned that he he starts there's a de- degenerescence that starts with him that you know he's unstoppable <laughs> after that he really starts degenerating and you know until we see him as an old man you know and uh, it's very interesting yeah yeah I mean the first shot we can go ahead we're you know I like the shot of the prison you know we see the door opening yeah uh, yeah I love so that it, yeah. it implies how dark the room must be that just a little bit of light can light it up like that yeah. This um, is, you know the silhouette of the king also with the you know the door and the way we see his foot you know mm-hmm. you know all of this implies you know I don't know like the sound you know yep. it implies yep. who Gr- Griffiths you know uh, experiences it you know mm-hmm. the sound yeah exactly the sound of the footstep yeah implies the yeah um I'm, I, my notes are too scattered so I'm gonna have to go page by page in this on this section but yeah what I was gonna say initially was the king's face here. The first shot we see of him is just disturbing, greasy, gross, uh, and the, the the look he gives Griffith. Yeah, you I don't know, even I know s- how to describe it. Well, you know, you know, you know, just the first thing is, you know, I like the shot, you know, before that, you know, where we see the king's back in the foreground, Griffith in the back, and there's torture tools, you know, all those the place, you know, in the dark, you know, and yeah, like you say, you know, his face, I think. You know, his eyes are different. Like Mira portrays his eyes differently, bigger, and you know, mm-hmm. he's got these, I know, his eyebrows are, you know, uh, sloping down, you know. And so I think this way of portraying him, you know, like the greasy, you know, stash and beard and, you know, this, this forehead of his, you know, everything. It's just, his face is, you know, somewhat distorted. And, you know, it really, you know, it's funny because it's the same character, but, you know, he looks, he comes across completely differently now, especially, you know, when, uh, you know, compared to Griffiths in that shot, you know, who's also lit by the fire, but who still looks, you know, the same as before, even though he's, you know, hanging from the ceiling. Right. Yeah. I was also going to say that, that he's been left untouched, uh, apart from being, you know, imprisoned, obviously, but yeah, there's no blemish on him yet, uh, left for the king to be questioned, you know, obviously, yeah. you know, uh, one thing I, I want to say about this is that even though, even, you know, despite what I've said before, and uh, even though the king's, you know, anger is, you know, very intense, 
he still comes across in what he tells Griffiths as a, as a fair and progressive man he had been so far, you know, like, you know, the ones that had given Griffiths a chance when pretty much everyone else thought it was a bad idea, you know, that uh, let him, you know, rise, you know, through merit, even though he was, you know, uh, I mean, a common... So, you know, I find it interesting that at this point, he's still being... You know, like he's angry and he's starting to gross, but he's still being, you know, I don't know, he's, he still has some dignity. He's still, you know, well, he's not completely crazy and evil and monstrous yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't feel we need to go through every single line of dialogue here with the, with the yeah, king. Yeah, I agree. He's I basically, agree. you know, he's saying a lot of things, first of all, that we already knew, that he believed in Griffith, that he actually was genuine and thinking Griffith could rise up and become someone of importance later on. You know, and ultimately to lead his troops, you know, he laid that out for him. He wasn't faking that. And yeah. he feels betrayed that Griffith – first of all, that Griffith betrayed his trust. And second of all, that of all people, he chose Charlotte. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's one thing I like in that scene is that while he talks, you know, he suddenly whips Griffiths, you know, and starts, you know, uh, whipping him. And I think that conveys well the tension and anger, you know, like uncontrolling, you know, uncontrollable anger in in, uh, in him, you know, especially since, you know, uh, you know, before that point, we had rarely seen, you know, Griffiths being defenseless, you know, which he, he is here. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, yeah, what while, you know, the king says a lot of things and, you know, I think uh, his plea about the weight of ruling and that kind of stuff, it adds a, a lot of death to his character, you know. Um, but, you know, by the point he starts talking about warmth, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that Charlotte was, you know, uh, represented that warmth, you can tell that there's something, you, you can tell for sure that there's something dark lurking beneath the surface. It's not just a, a father being pissed off that his daughter was defiled. You know, you you can tell, you know, like it, it's... What says that's when to me that's the point where he starts, you know, uh, being, you know, seriously odd and gross, you know. And uh, I think it's exemplified by that shot of you see his face looks very serene, you know, when he talks about warmth. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the shot below where he talks about Griffiths, he has this look of, you know, anger and, you know, uh, madness on his face, you know. Yeah, it conveys a duality here where it's, it's, it's as if Griffith's bringing out the darkness in him. You know, this, yeah. what, what he's done has done this to this man that yeah. there were all these, there are always these two sides lurking within, within him and it's brought out the dark, the darker part of him. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And I think, you know, like his total look of darkness is also what, how to say, is that's when Griffith understands, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, you know, that, you know, uh, the king was lusting after Charlotte, you know, and, uh, yeah, of course he, <laughs> he comments on that, you know, and he hits the nail on the head. And you actually, there's a shot where the king is, you know, you see him from the side when Griffiths start talking because all the while while the king was, you know, talking and talking and weeping, Griffiths didn't say what, didn't even cry out. But uh, then you see, you know, like he starts talking and the king is, you know, taken aback. And, uh, of course, he's actually enraged, you know, because, uh, of course, yeah, Griffiths, you know, gets it right. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, he starts whipping him, you know, like pretty crazily, actually. There's a couple of shots of the king on this page. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, his reaction shot to Griffith implying the truth. It's, it's, it's I don't know. It's, it's, it's almost comical the way it's yeah. drawn. You know, he looks like a Dr. Seuss character in, in that one shot. And I actually wondered, and I've said this before. If the king didn't explicitly have this desire, if the, if if what Griffith is saying 
not – I mean I use the word what's planted in his head. But no, I, I think Griffith is correct in, in, in presenting this information this way. But I wonder if the king had ever actually actively thought about his daughter in that way uh, and, and, until Griffith brought this up. And at that point, of course, he acts on it in the following scene. Yeah. As if he's discovering it for himself, the truth of his feelings. Well, you know, I also think uh, he, he, he must have known, you know, like we, we knew there, there was some, you know, talk before from the queen that, uh, about the fact, you know, the king was really desperately in love with a, you know, previous queen. And we see a shot of her and we see that she looks pretty much exactly like Charlotte. Sure. So, so I, I think, yeah, from that point on, you know, and from all the reasons, because he's a fucking pervert, you know, the king, you know, was, uh, lusting after his daughter, but, he, yeah, I think he also didn't touch her because, uh, you know, through his dialogue, we can tell that he thought she was pure, you know, pure and, you know, uh, immaculate. And now Griffith has defiled her. So right. because she has been defiled, you know, like the king, you know, is in a mindset that he can also, you know, act on his, you know, feelings. So, yeah, it's a bit complicated because, like you say, Maybe he had no, you know, conscious thoughts about that. Maybe it was subconscious. I don't know. I can't be sure of that. But what's true is that it sparks, you know, him, uh, his actions, you know, to to go in in that direction. And I, I think I, I'm pretty convinced of it now. Looking back at this volume now, because of the way his personality changes. Yeah. I don't think he ever had any explicit thoughts. I think Griffith awoke this in him, uh, and it was it was always sleeping there. This desire because of this connection to his daughter and his wife. I think that's a, that's a, the key point. In addition yeah. to him being probably fundamentally flawed as a human to, to obviously to seek out those desires. But yeah, uh, I, I do think Griffith brought it out on him. I don't think, for example, this would have ever necessarily happened. The Charlotte probably would have been, you know, married off to another country and it would be beneficial to Midland and that would have been it. He might have had those desires but never acted on them. So Yeah, yeah, I agree. And actually, I think... You know, like as he leaves, you know, after he's, you know, what say, uh, whipped Griffiths to, you know, uh, to go bloody pulp, you know, of course he tells the guards, there's some shots of him looking very sinister. There's one especially where he's surrounded in, in darkness, you know, and oh, he yeah. looks very, he looks insanely, you know, sinister and ominous. And, but, uh, anyway, you know, even then he tells Griffiths, you know, as he leaves that, you know, it's too bad Griffiths rushed, you know, his ambitions that right. he, he worked too fast because, he could have had, you know, the king almost implies that Griffiths could have had what he wanted in the end had he, had he been more patient. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the key. It's also that even though the king has had his desires and even though he didn't marry off Charlotte as soon as he could because, you know, maybe he had these desires, as time went on, he might have relented and Griffiths could have, you know, maybe had access to the throne, you know, you know, if he had been more patient. So it's, uh, it's even more bitter for Griffiths, you know, to hear that as the king, you know, leaves, you know, never to return. Right. That's one thing we didn't talk about in this scene necessarily was Griffith's reaction to what's happening. There's a couple things. And as you said, it, it, he was wordless until a certain point. And at that point, Griffith goes on the offensive, which is pretty notable for a guy that's fucking on the ropes more than anyone possibly can be chained up, being whipped by, you know, the king. Being sentenced to not death, but something worse than death. Yet he still finds the tenacity to come back and basically go to the king into madness over his daughter. It yeah. shows Griffith is a pretty exceptional person to, and also a pretty, I don't know, his back's to the wall. 
He's yeah. arrogant. He's arrogant. He's very yeah. proud, you know. And Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's shown because after the king whips him, you know, like puts blood everywhere, whips him really crazily, Griffith still has a defiant look in his eye, you know, like right. he didn't cry when he was whipped and he's still not broken. Yeah. Like he's someone, he's not, you know, he's maybe not, you know, as, you know, strong as guts, you know, in many ways, but he's some, someone that's not easy to break. And, you know, that look, the, the fact he still looks at the king like that, uh, you know, that's what prompts the king to tell the executioner to torture him for a year, mm-hmm. but not to kill him, you know, because he wants him to be broken. You know, that's what he wants. And actually, he eventually kind of does break him, you know, physically and mentally. But, uh, yeah, it's his, this, you know, uh, defiance that, you know, results in, in that. What the fuck happened to this torturer guy? What, what? crevice of the earth did this guy crawl from look at his body look at his lips <laughs> his fucking gross forehead what the hell is this guy well you know uh there's a saying in french is you know you know we said this guy was finished with piss you know <laughs> like you know by his father you know what i mean like he's a uh, half sperm half piss where well, it's hard <laughs> to translate it but yeah that's pretty much you know what comes to my mind when seeing this guy <laughs> So yeah, well, it's uh, it's obvious. He actually some of his deformities are based on real deformities that can happen, unfortunately, to people. But uh, yeah, I guess you know he must have not had an easy life, and so he took refuge in torturing other people. Uh, yeah, healthy, you know, occupation. He would have been right at home in Mosgus's group, though. He would yeah, have, exactly. would have found a, a happy home. He's actually a, a precursor of Mosgus, you know, little theater of horrors. Yeah, this whole scene, like being surrounded by torturing equipment. Brings that to mind. But uh, yeah, you mentioned already the king's threat to the soldiers that are in the room. I like that he he silences them by threatening their entire families. Oh, yeah. If yeah. the word got out. And yeah, also, what I like about the threat is that it could have come from a number of different – it could have come from anyone. Any you know, word of this getting out could have come from the maids or the guards or yeah. any number of things. But these guys would pay the price. That's the, that's the power of that threat, you know, being a king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I like his face, you know, like the look on his face. You can tell he's not fucking around, you know, and the guys, they, they look, you know, like they're properly yeah. scared, you know, like, because yeah. he'll pretty much kill everyone, you know, like from their grandmother to their neighbor's dog, you know, everyone's getting killed. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And like you say, it shows the power of the king. Mm-hmm. The scene ends as the door is being shut on him and as, and, you know, he becomes engulfed in darkness. I like that. The, uh, the door is being closed, and you can see light receding from the scene across Griffith's yeah. body. It's very cool. And then we have this disgusting scene that I we have to spend time on, but just grosses me out every time I see it. So I don't have a lot written for, but I'll do I'll do my best. So the king returns to Charlotte's room after he is presumably toweled and toweled the blood from his body off uh, from the torturing scene. And uh, he first thing he says is that you know. She's she's aged and she becomes more like her mother. You know, she resembles her mother. Yeah. And then he begins focusing on Charlotte as a sexual creature, not his daughter. You know, he yeah. thinks you know, about. Go ahead. One thing, yeah. One thing I want to say is that when he arrives, we don't see his eyes. You know, they're shot in darkness. Right. And you know, when we see his eyes, it's when he starts looking at her sexually. You know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's when these eyes, you know, like, there's really a glint of madness in, in there, you know. And I like that he's, you know, gross body, you know, like, his eyes, his strangling hands, 
his mouth, you know, there's a shot of his mouth focusing there, you know, put in contrast with Charlotte's, you know, pristine and pure and white body, you know. So it's, a, I think it's a, it's a pretty brilliant contrast, you know, uh, between the madness and the disgusting with Charlotte's, you know, pureness and innocence, you know, as she's sleeping because she's also sleeping. So she's completely, it's, you know, uh, to me it's very symbolic, you know, it's innocence versus, you know, uh, grossness and depravity. Actually, there's one thing I didn't notice until this reread is the the panel that leads into this scene is you know the king talking to uh, presumably the maid servants and yeah she says that Strong was asleep she actually had been drugged yeah uh, after the the whole incident you know so she's she's docile because she's been drugged you know, yeah actually so yeah exactly yeah and so and you know I was about to say there's one you know one page especially that's very you know it's when the king uh, licks on nipple you know it's almost to me that page has it's almost got the same horror feel to it than the, you know, when the tiger pishashas, you know, oh, yeah. are the pool in Britain is or the, the monstrous fishermen, you know, on the solitary island in, in later volumes, you know, the, the man's dignity, like we said earlier, as a king, you know, it's gone for good now. Like it's, it's gone forever and the, he never recovers from it in the series. Like the degenerescence, like it has clearly started when you see his face. It's not a king anymore. He's, he looks like almost like a dog, you know, like he, yeah. he's, you know, he, he have, you know, even doesn't look human anymore. The, you mentioned it before, but the, the contrast between these two figures is really fascinating to look at. There's all these different textures on the king from both from his robe and the darkness and the lighting and the shading. Whereas Charlotte is almost like she's being lit, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting that Mira is not playing around with ship putting this guy in a horrible light, you know, focusing on, I mean, you look at his goddamn forehead, you know, it's constantly yeah. creased and like horrifying looking. Uh, when he initially licks Charlotte, she reacts uh, to the sensation and then she opens her eyes. So is that saying she liked it? Is that right, guys? Is it she's responding like that? So she enjoys this experience. It's just like Casca. No, nah, the, the eclipse know. scene, right? <laughs> You know, she's having well, a physical reaction, so she must enjoy it. That's how it works. That's how physiology works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, that uh, it's necessary to bring that into that. But yeah, obviously, she just, you know, like she opens her eye because she's waking up from, from, uh, you know, the sleep state she was in. So, you know, I don't think there's even any sign of necessary arousal, you know. Just a sensation, yeah. I know. Yeah. I was I was mostly just joking. Yeah, I know, I know, but I feel like I have to explain it for the listeners. In that, you know, uh, you know, many people, you know, recently have been talking about, you know, Casca's, you know, how to say the shots of Casca during the rape, during the eclipse, and uh, and how it means something or it doesn't mean something. Whereas, you know, I think the shots, you know, me and Walter think the shots are pretty clear in what they imply. You know, <clears throat> we see, you know, blood, we see tears. She's saying no. And so, yeah, I don't think there's much to be hypothesized there in that, uh, yeah, it's a rape and she's not, you know, getting off on, off it, you know. Of course. <clears throat> the episode ends with uh, focusing on Griffith, uh, yeah. dark in his cell, just being lit by the one small hole into his cell. Uh, and he says this is worthless. I wonder about that line that you – know, well, go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, I, I like, you know, well, there's also one thing is that you see before that Charlotte is yelling, you know, like screaming sure. when, the, when the king. And, you know, it's funny that there's no one there around to, you know, there's no maid or nothing to, you know, to help her there. But, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I like the, you know, the cut, you know, uh, from the king 
and his degenerations, you know, the madness and Griffiths in his cell. You don't see his eyes, you know, his eyes are hidden by his hair and blood. <clears throat> and I think, uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, there's a, a shared uh, thematic, you know, of, you know, a theme of mental degradation here, like a loss of sanity and dignity because, you know, it's a bit different, but Griffiths, you know, the, you know, pure and white and, you know, you know, general who conquered everything, he's now, you know, chained in a cell, you know, covered in blood and wounded and, uh, yeah, reflecting on his life. And that's also for him the beginning of madness, you know. We know how it will, uh, uh, you know, go from there. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's a, a theme there shared between the kings in madness, you know, and uh, degradation and the way Griffiths is, you know, like his ordeal and he's, you know, fall from grace is also starting now. <clears throat> sure. Also, for readers that aren't uh, caught up on what had happened, you know, reading the scene as it happens, you see the Bahira, you see him chained to a wall you see his dream crumbling you know one might think that the next episode is when the behira activates you know the way things are set up it seems like that's what's coming from this sequence of events you know but of course it doesn't so i wonder if there was that much suspense from that final shot of griffith and his cell alone you know with the behira or not at the time well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think this must have been very exciting for readers of the time because, you know, they knew a lot of things, but at the same time, they didn't know a lot of things. You know, that's one of the things people say, you know, uh, they're not, you know, uh, involving any supernatural elements, you know, whatever, especially regarding the TV series was more, you know, it allowed for more suspense, but I actually disagree, you know, I think... You never know, even though you've seen, you know, you know that, uh, Griffiths becomes Femto and, you know, Guts is a black swordsman. You don't know, there's many things you don't know. You don't know what happens to the rest of the band of the Falcon. You don't know how things, you know, came to be that way. So at this point, still anything could go, you know, like anything mm-hmm. could go. And the, the last few volumes before the eclipse are, they're filled with, you know, twists and, you know, last minute, you know, changes. And it's even, you know, even the time, like when they've rescued Griffiths and he actually goes to the lake and stuff, is that's very it's very sudden, you know. Like I mean, I I think you know just you know one episode before the eclipse starts, people you know still weren't sure when it was gonna start, you know. Right. So I think you know uh, how to say it was still very suspenseful at the time. I would have liked to have been reading the series episodically at the time. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I always I constantly think that, and I try to put myself. In the headspace of what it might what it might have been to be re- a reading like that at the time. Anyway, uh, the next you know next few pages are basically a continuation of the his descent into mad the king's descent into madness. And what I liked about these shots, there's one in particular where she's clutching her body and turning away from him, and you see him uh, arms outstretched, you know, behind her. And the 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 utter difference between the two, his disheveled hair, the texture on his robe. This expression yeah. on his face, it's all, the, the, the difference between the two is, is really interesting to look at. Yeah, there's, there's one panel where he's, you know, it's just his face and you see his hand, you know, uh, reaching towards her. It, uh, right. it reminds me of uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know. Like, <laughs> that's saying, that's saying insanity, you know, the same, you know, that's what it reminds me of, you know. Well, he looks like a zombie in, in some of these things, <laughs> you know. He doesn't look human at all. He looks like some kind of monster. Yeah. Anyway, there's this disgusting thing where he gets, uh, of course, face full of his daughter's vagina, which is just fantastic. Uh, and she calls out for Griffith at that moment. And yeah. then he looks up from his, you know, dirty business to see that. And he's surprised that she, or shocked that she would call out his name during this. And 
that's when he gets a face full of heel or heel in the eye, you know, and he looks actually wounded from it. And I would love to see him explaining that away in court later on, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think she actually actually breaks his nose and, you know, uh, fucks up his eye, you know, by stomping his face like that. So, yeah. And like, yeah, like you said, uh, the imagery there is very powerful and uh very how to say disturbing you know like his face you know looking inside the thighs you know you, you know it's very you know how to say he's an aggressor there and it's uh how to say it's no different from a bandit it's I, actually i think it's one of the worst i mean uh worst scenes of sexual aggression in the series you know oh uh, yeah absolutely plus, plus much, because it's it's it keeps going you know and yeah it's not, it's not the implied for example the scene could have ended uh, with him, uh, a couple pages before, when, before we see Griffith in the cell saying this is worthless, it could have ended with the king just kind of like straddling her, and then we know what might have happened. But no, Miura goes a couple pages in and yeah. actually exposes exactly what happened page by page before and the I, thing. Yeah, and I, and I think the fact he's also a father, you know, reinforces the fact, you know, like it's even, it's even grosser and it's even more for, you know, crime, you know, uh, through that fact, you know, and I think yeah, that, that makes it one of the most, you know, powerful and intense and uh, horrible, you know, uh, sexual aggression scene in the in the series, you know, and of and of course it ends, you know, what to say, relatively well with you know Charlotte actually showing bravery and you know uh, fighting off, you know, and uh, sending him back, you know. She hits him twice. I didn't notice that until just now. She hits him yeah. in the heel, in the eye, in the nose. And then the next panel, she hits him again because the next shot, his teeth are all fucked up. So she actually hits him twice. Well, you see, you know, like I, I think we don't see exactly, uh, but, you know, you see one direct, you know, hit on his nose, you know, and uh, and his brow. And then you can see she's hitting another time right after that. So I, I think, you know, she might have, you know, it might have been off screen, but I think, yeah, she, she gave him at least two hits directly there. Oh, and you can maybe... see, look at his mouth. Look at his mouth in the previous panel. His teeth are intact. And then the yeah. next panel of him, his teeth are fucked up. So she hit him in the, in the mouth. Yeah, yeah I, I know she hit him in the mouth. My point is, like, we see two hits, but, you know, like, before that reaction, there might have been a third. Or, you know, you oh, know okay, what I mean? Sure. Yeah, but yeah. in any case, there's one hit, the second one, where we don't exactly see where she hits him. So that might have been the teeth, you know. It's uh, it's possible. <clears throat> uh, and, of course, the scene ends with him calling out to Griffith, you know, cursing him for everything that happened. Because it's Griffith's yeah. fault that he decided to rape his daughter. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny because she's also she's crying on a bed. Calling yeah. for Griffiths, and he's you know yelling in a in a corridor, you know <laughs> yelling for Griffiths. So you know it's like these guys are really fucked up, you know. Yeah, yeah. His, Griffiths' nose is itching throughout this whole scene. Mm-hmm. Everyone's calling his name out. And then it uh, then it cuts to Casca looking, you know, sullen, yeah, on a on a horse, you know, in the middle of a field, and uh, so the falcons all wondering, you know, what's going on, why they were called there, where where Griffiths is, you know, actually like that. Corcas is, you know, how to say, he's being very harsh about guts, of course. And you see mm-hmm. the, the guts form a man, you know, who are actually crying, you know, <laughs> yeah. that. So it's pretty, you know, you you can tell that guts is missed by people and that, you know, like his, his actions, you know, he saw them with himself when he left, but he's being missed by his comrades. You know, it's not something that's, you know, it's not like he was just a freeloader or anything like that. Of course. Yeah. He meant a lot to... Even people whose names we don't even know, you know, in the Falcons, yeah. you know. So uh, presumably his raiding party or others, you know, obviously he meant a lot to them. 
I mean, there were two hearts to the Falcons, and you know, Griffith was at the core, but Guts was a big part of it as well, obviously. Yeah, and he had the, the loyalty of his men. Right. And so, uh, they're worried I – mean, Rickard's worried about you know where Griffith might be. So nothing, no one's heard back from him uh, since uh, the, the duel, actually. Yeah. And uh, they, they're wondering why they've been asked to come out here, and uh, Pippin hears something on the wind. I think actually what's happening is – he hears sound bounced off of the water is what it seems like because you see that tree in the water. There's a shot yeah. of that. And sound I think carries farther or faster through water. Well, I know it carries farther. Farther, yeah, farther. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure but yeah. Either way, he, he detects something, you know. Like we know from, you know, other moments in the series that he's, you know, he's a, he's got a knack for detecting things. So yeah, yeah. He, he detects, you know, that arrows are being fired. You know, like we like we actually see, you know, a, a shot, you know, of the hills and you know some silhouettes, you know, there, mm-hmm. which he also detects. You see his eye, you know. Uh, he immediately knows to take cover. It's not that yeah. oh, someone's coming. He detects a threat. Yeah, he knows he knows it's a trap, so he warns them, and everybody's taken a, a back, you know, and then the arrows, you know, start raining, you know. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty horrible. Uh, we actually get this shot uh, of the the falcons themselves, so we kind of see how big their force was at the time. And I think we later get an indication of their numbers. I think we talked about that last time. Yeah. But uh, it's a good indication of how many are left. And it seems quite large. And we know that drops down by to a few dozen, I'm assuming, around the eclipse. So yeah. So it makes you wonder how many died on this field and, and how many dropped out in the time between now and then. But I'm uh, assuming quite a few died, you know, hundreds. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they were butchered. Actually, you see, like, the scenes, you know, it's pretty horrible. Like, they are just pummeled with arrows, you know. And uh, and I like that shot, you know, where you see them, you know, in the middle of the plain and on the hills. They are surrounded by all of Midland's, you know, remaining armies. Mm-hmm. So it's a massacre. And... Uh, and yeah, they're obviously completely overwhelmed, and they don't—they are not wearing armor, and they don't have weapons. So you know, something strikes me now that I think about it. Um, you know, we wondered at the time. I'm assuming we wondered. You know, what these soldiers were told to act on. Obviously, they're acting on the king's orders, and that's all that really needs to be said. But there probably had to be an excuse given for why they were attacking the country's saviors, who a few weeks ago were being praised and risen up. You know. And so I'm assuming they were told that they were causing an uprising. And I, can't, I think I remember hearing, reading something about that. Does Owen not mention something about that or Rickert joke about that in the mm. newer newer episode? Something about how the Hawks were just bandits or something like that. I well, yeah. I, you know, uh, Rickert talks about the they were bandits, but uh, – he, he must be in the early, age, the early yeah, days is what he's he referring. He's uh, referring to when he knew Griffiths. Like he knew him from the time he was just uh, a bandit essentially. Sure. So I seem to, to remember some line from some character talking about the ultimate fate of the Falcons uh, and I don't remember what it was. But basically we got a reflection of what – these guys must have been told their fate was to 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 act like this, you know. Well, yeah, I'm not really sure we get to know exactly what they were accused of, but uh, what's sure is they were after that, you know, after they escaped, they were tracked down. So sure, they were fugitives and traitors, you know. So you know, in any case, what's left is that they were accused, of, they were traitors, you know, and uh, right. And that's it, you know. And uh, anyway, you know, what I like in that, you know, scene, apart from the fact they all get, you know, uh, how to say, butchered, and you get to see a lot of, you know, arrows, you know, killing folks, horses falling falling down, that kind of stuff. And 
you know, you see Casca, you know, while they're all panicking and, you know, uh, it's, it's chaotic. Everyone's stunned, you know, by what's happening. They think it's the enemies and, you know, realize it's, you know, Midlands, you know, uh, mm-hmm. soldiers. And Casca rises up and, you know, takes command, start giving orders, you know, telling them what to do. And, uh, you know, like it shows, I think it's a big part of her character. It shows, you know, what kind of, what her metal is, you know, that, you know, she's, you know, her alone, you know, in that moment, you know, takes command. And, uh, that's shown again during the eclipse, you know, when they are all panicked and she's the one, you know, taking, you know, taking the reins. So I, I think it goes to show that she was not Griffith's, uh, first in command for, you know, someone second in command for no reason, you know, like she, she, she's someone that genuinely has value as a commander. Sure. I, I love the shots of her. We just get a small one, a small panel of her on the horse, and then we see her commanding. And we actually see a more heroic shot of her later on in the volume when Rickards were counting what yeah. happened to Guts later on. But uh, I, I do like these shots and her taking yeah. command. I also like how the scene ends here super yeah. suspensefully, you know? Yeah. Ar- arrows basically right at her, you know, presuming that could be it for Casca, you know, because yeah. we talked about this earlier in the show. We don't know what the fate of all the individual Falcons are by the end of this era of the series. Yeah, we just know Guts survived and Griffith became Femto. But we don't know if Casca survived. We don't know anything yeah. about that. That's one of the big surprises of the post-Eclipse era of the series. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, of course, and she's got, you know, seven arrows coming at her. So it's not, yeah. you know. So, yeah, yeah indeed. I, I also love that chat. So we see Griffith again and being tortured. Uh, we see a wheel in the background, a water wheel, kind of implying the range of tortures that must be going on in this horrible place. Well, uh, yeah. And he has uh, these you kind know, of like spikes protruding from his arms. I don't know a lot about torture, so I couldn't really describe why those are there. I'm assuming it has to do with limiting his muscle movements or just – just causing him pain, I'm assuming, is really well, what it comes down to. You know, to. the wheel uh, usually is, uh, strap people to the wheel. There are several things, but they can strap people to the wheel, turn it. You know, there's some stuff where they would say elongate people, like they pull on your legs and arms, you know, sure. and arc your back. And so, it's uh, of course, it's a way of torturing people. And uh, there, there's really many things you can do. And of yeah, there's many things. There's also the classic things, the one you see uh, most good guys do. You know, uh, during the conviction arc where they strap a guy to a wheel, you know, and then mm-hmm. they break his, you know, uh, arms and legs, you know, with a stick. So yeah, this stuff is, uh, it's classic torture shit. I guess, I mean, I don't really know the significance of those things that are sticking out of Griffith. I'm assuming they were hot pokers that he's just sticking. Oh into yeah. His body, oh basically. yeah. Yeah. What is sticking? Yeah. It's probably, yeah. It's also what I, I guessed, you know. So we also see the hook coming out of his hand in that one shot of the torturer. So he's being, the way he's being suspended is also a torture uh, through his hand. Yeah, of course. What I like about this scene is the torturer mentions that he kind of recognizes how special Griffith is, even in like physically, that he's like a he's a great specimen to torture because he's so exquisite, his body yeah. and, uh, and a, perfection, yeah. so and beautiful. And at the same time, he's also mentally strong because even though he's being tortured, he's not, you know, crying out or doing, you know, yelping or anything like that. Right. And uh, it's during this scene when the torturer notices the Behirat that it, it, it chooses to bounce away or he basically yeah. doesn't bounce away. Excuse me. That was stupid. It opens his eyes and it is dropped. Uh, yeah. Into, into it's, you know, head. it's uh, the way <laughs> causality works, you know. Yeah. He opens his eyes. The guy's shocked. He lets it drop. It falls down. Yeah. And it's carried away by the water. And that's, again, a shot that's very, you know, enigmatic. Because mm-hmm. we know, you know, uh, Griffiths became Femto. But at that point, 
the Beheriti Hazard is all life is going away, you know, being carried by sewage water. So how come will he ever, you know, get it back? How right. come will he become, you know, femto after all? So well, there's also the shot of Griffith reacting to what had happened. It's just these ellipse and his look on his face as if he's thinking, yeah. even that has abandoned me at this point, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a time, you know, like his luck is gone, you know, even that, you know, that his talisman or good luck charm is is you know also going off forever. So yeah. Right. I have a breakaway point here uh, in terms of the narrative. We focus on guts for a bit. Uh, guts. Uh, actually, I like the way it's it's um, it kind of leads into this tournament. You know, we don't see guts necessarily. We just see this tournament is happening near yeah. this giant castle. Uh, you know, lots of jousting and uh, shows of force. Uh, what I like about this is the different coats of arms we see. There's just a, a whole whole different bunch of different iconography. Uh, Cross swords are kind of like a, I don't know what that, oh, actually, I've seen that symbol before. I don't know what it is though. Uh, on the night, uh. Yeah, I don't know. Ah, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's been shown before. Uh, the wheel. But anyway. No where. But yeah, the, it's, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's a return to, you know, local laws and that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to see that. It's, uh, again, one of the things it expands the universe. You know, it shows that there can be locally, you know, some tournaments, you know, some stuff like that, adjusting, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not much, but, it, uh, it goes to show that the world is very large. You know, it's not just, you know, the courtroom in, in, you know, uh, Windham or anything like that, but, you know, local laws, you know, and, uh, and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> the, uh, there's a shot that when the jousters are crossing and you can see a ton of different costumed people, uh, behind the, I'm assuming the feudal lord uh, around yeah. them. It's interesting all the different range of costumes and outfits people have. The mirror chose to show off. And we are introduced to, uh, Valencia or is it Valencia? I don't know. Uh, it's a, it's a Valencia we've written with an, Fuck, I don't remember. <laughs> it's a, it's, it doesn't really matter. He, he's a nobody, basically. You know, he's uh, drawn very impressively, and uh, yeah, we, he's actually pretty strong. He sure. killed you know, like 130, you know, soldiers. He was actually what's interesting about him is he was on the Tudor side, you know. Right, right. Yeah, his also his armor looks kind of like a patchwork. It looks like plate armor, basically. It's super thick, you know, super strong guy. We actually see a colorization of him uh, and that Miura had drawn around this time. I think it was 95 or maybe 96. Uh, we see that appear on one of the young animals, one of the inserts. I think it also appears in the art book, the illustrations guide uh, of this guy yep. with guts. Anyway, this uh, Valencia or Valence, whatever his name is, is uh, facing off against Silat and – you know, it's basically just, you know, a tournament for entertainment purposes. Um, and, but, you know, even though Valencia is, looks really impressive and, uh, it doesn't really have much effect on Silat, who can easily dodge his moves. Sorry, before that moment, we haven't seen Guts yet, but we see a little cameo of him kind yeah. of standing off to the side, watching. <laughs> he's, wa he's watching, yeah. Yeah, basically, you know, we see later he's waiting for his moment to appear to see who the stronger one is, to see which one's worth fighting, you know. And uh, obviously, Silat, you know, has no trouble, you know, taking out this guy using what's his flaws. Uh, what's interesting about him is that he's very, he's a very different style character, you know. Up to sure. this point, we've never seen, you know, somebody who was really dexterous. 
and uh and he has you know like he's got this very of course oriental look to to him you know and uh we can see he actually whips you know Valencia's face with his you know <laughs> with his feet yeah. he just you know kicks him in the face it's a it's a very specific style and uh and it's uh, I I find it quite refreshing actually at that point to see someone like that where you know you see this you know giant guy like you said you know who's a bit you know he's built on the same model as Adon or you know Samson you know some huge you know Hulk you know that's just you know you know very strong but not necessarily very skilled and uh and so he just you know takes him down easily with with skill I also like how Silad is described when the before the the fight starts you know he's basically he's essentially the dark horse here he's the newcomer yeah, in a strange land using strange weapons and techniques, but in fact, his techniques and weapons are probably older than the, the weapons he's fighting against. You know, they probably are more well known and have more of a history in his land than these swords do in their own land. You know? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, if it's you know, if we relate it to real world, you know, history, uh, you know, India had a very proud, you know, military tradition, and they were very advanced militarily. I mean, long before. Long before medieval Europe even existed, like long before they were even, you know, military advanced. I think these weapons existed before ancient Greece. You know, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, yeah. it's, you know, like 8,000, you know, years old. So, well, I'm, I might be exaggerating a bit here, but yeah, it's very old. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, and, you know, Silak kind of boasts after dispatching Valencia that he, you know, the, the, the techniques of this land are dull. And- <laughs> yeah. He kind of, you know, he does that. When I first read that line, I thought he was just thinking to himself that basically, you know, like guts, he's not found a challenge among these people. Um, but uh, he says it aloud, and because guts, you know, you know, kind of like makes fun of him for for saying it later on, you know. So yeah. he had heard it as well, and you know, seeing Silat perform the way he did is when guts chooses to make his entrance. You know, he kind of emerges from the crowd. Butts a guy over that really wanted yeah. to fight Silat, which is this loser guy with downturned horn helmet. I love it. You know, you know, I I love how guts, you know, handles him. You know, he's like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. He's like, sorry, bro. You know, like, like he's, like, he's, but, he's budding up on him. Put his hand. He put his arm on the guy's head. Yeah, you know? it's, it's it's pretty good. You know, yeah. He's just he's got this guy knows. You know, from the time guts arrived, he already the guy already knows he's a loser and he's gonna step aside. You know, it's just you know, yeah. I mean, I also like just the whole way this is presented. It's just wetting the audience's anticipation for guts, you know, showing what he's made of. Yeah, you know, it just really makes you want to see him. And the the, the local lord, you know, uh, himself is very, you know, I think he's the perfect example of that. You know, yeah, he, he's very excited. He reacts very honestly to any kind of, you know, uh, how to say, new appearance or suspense or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 pretty funny. It's a pretty I think it's a pretty funny scene, you know. Uh, you know uh, much lighter than what we've just been put through, you know. Like Absolutely, yeah. it lightens the mood a bit, you know. It shows guts, you know. It's one year later, he's very, you know, there's new stuff, you don't know, he's got a new armor. You don't know what's going to happen. It's very it's very light and it's very refreshing. I think at that point in the volume it's it's very refreshing. It's new stuff, you know, it's very exciting. It's new stuff. No more, you know, band of the hawk, uh, no, no more such things. It's very new, you know. Yeah, we didn't mention that because it actually wasn't shown to us, but we learned later that a year has passed between the last scene or actually, you know, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, yeah, a year has passed between the last scene and this scene. Uh because, you know, the immediate after this is guts returning to the Falcons camp. So yeah, it's been a year yep. on the run. 
Uh, and he's been training in the mountains, which we learn later. So this is the first look at, you know, the newly ref- refined, honed guts. Uh, what I also like about this scene is, you know, it's such a, what a, what a badass. He doesn't even really draw his sword necessarily until the very, very, very end. You know, it doesn't have to just quickly dodges all of Silat's movements. Uh, yeah. even though he notes that he's quick, he doesn't have a problem dodging him without even drawing his sword. Yeah, that's the thing is that Silat completely overwhelmed, uh, Valencia, you know, yeah. he, he was, you know, much better and he himself didn't have, you know, to parry or anything like that. And Guts, even though he comments and, you know, he comments a bit seriously that, you know, Silat is very fast. He himself can do the same to him. So I think it's, you know, just through that, it shows how strong and how skilled Guts has become. Like he's, you know, better than the guy. He's much better than the guys that's much better than the guys that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I like uh, Guts' sword design here as well. The new sword is like a kind of a super reinforced handle. I just like the look of it, the this, this squared off uh, guard of it. Yeah, it's very it's very utilitarian. Also, it's not you know it's not fancy or anything like mm-hmm. that. It gets the job done. Yeah, and, it also uh, implies that, the weight of it as well. The, the fact that it's so super reinforced. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it fits guts. You know, it fits yeah. guts, and uh, and that's that's a sword that was probably made by Godo. Yeah, yeah, you're right because he's coming fresh. I'm, I'm assuming he's coming fresh from the mountains and training. So that's the sword he chose to leave the mountain with. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um. This is all, it's almost guts at his most badass so far in the series. The way he dispatches Stilat just with one motion. And then he has this like kind of like a eighties action movie one liner to guts. And he, you might want to stick to stick to street performing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> after he sends Stilat flying and rolling away, you know, with no, yeah. really no effort, you know. And, and especially because, you know, Stilat is not. Like, I mean, it's not like what we, we see of him is unimpressive. He's pretty crazy. Like, he strikes very fast. He's got a blade in his fucking boot. And, you know, when, when Gus parries that as well, he fucking flips off and, you know, try to stab him in the, in the fucking, you know, stomach, you know, with his blade. So it, it's very, he's very impressive. But mm-hmm. Gus, even though Gus, yeah, just a single hit, of course, without even killing him, you know, just, you know, sends him flying back into the ropes. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And there's, there's a crowd, you know, cheering and everything like that. It's a, uh, yeah, yeah, it goes to show. I think that's his most badass so far. Definitely. Uh, you know, and he has the option for spoils here. Uh, the guy offers him, uh, to, he tells him that one of the true purposes of the tournament was to gather soldiers for a raid on, you know, a bandit's party. And what catches God's attention is that he says that a woman is leading their, their group. Yeah. And the guy, I think it might be here actually where, yeah, this is where it is. The guy describes who it is that they are. And he can't remember their name of what the group once was, but he remembers that, oh, they were accused of causing an uprising in Wyndham a year ago. Yeah. And so that's what it was. That's what I was thinking of. It was in this volume. So anyway, uh, he gets in to spell out what it is and he says it's the band of the Falcon and they're the boss of the Falcons is, uh, Casca. And of course, Guts presumably rushes off to, uh, find them. But actually what we see is, you know, we get a little glimpse of these raiding party in the next episode having already found them. It's the night after that camp. And I'll, I'll get to the transition, yeah. but there's one thing I wanted to note about the transition. We'll get to it later though. Uh, you know, there's, they're eyeing out the camp and they're waiting for the right time to strike. Uh, we'll be, we get a good glimpse at the condition of the remaining Falcons. 
Yeah, I, I like the face of the guys. I just want to say, I like yeah. the, they have some kind of evil glee, you know. They are they're really happy about it. It's it's just you know. It I looks like faces. it looks like you know if you look at any World War Two, World War One photos as the war dragged on in Europe, you know that's the kind of look you get from like just battle hardened guys that have seen, yeah. have been through the shit. You know, this look on their faces is just you know. And, yeah, the guy at the bottom with some kind of, you know, glasses-like thing, he almost reminds me of uh, Ubik, you know. Sorry, which one? Uh, the guy at the bottom, you know, oh. like <laughs> there's, there's these two guys, I don't know, it's just a, it's a fake, you know, glasses thing he's got on his eyes for protection. Sorry, I was looking at the next page, I was looking at the Falcons. Ah, uh, no, I uh, meant, you know, these two guys, you know, who yeah, are yeah. You know, uh, reconnoitering on, on the Falcons, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. I was referring to the look on the Falcons' faces. Yeah, you know, as they're all kind of weary from being on the run, seeing their friends killed over the past year, probably wondering why they're even still together. You know, at this point. But there are what's what's interesting about this this group of people is that these are the ones that chose to stay. They've all had the option of leaving, and some even left positions of comfort to join the party, like Gaston. Yeah, you know, had a had a shop, had a life, had carved out for himself, and and chose to join them after hearing their plight. Yeah, it's true true loyalty, you know. Right. Uh, we see Casca kind of almost passing out from exhaustion, trying to yeah. lead them. See the map. I, I, I like that shot of a sword on the coffer, you know, the map, you know, lit right. by the candle. You know, it's very, you know, I think it goes to show her weariness. You know, she's sitting on some tree trunk. You know, it's very, you know. Not eating. Sure. There's survival on the run. And, yeah. Uh, Judo's giving her a report, I think, of um, – is it, is it now? Yeah, he talks yeah. about, you know, they've got news from their inside, you know, informant within the castle, which is, you know, revealed later on to be Charlotte, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Judo's telling her that, you know, time is running out, that yeah. they're going to act, they need to act now, so – uh, Judo is kind of harsh with her, not harsh. He kind of just makes sure she's being nourished. You know, he's he's looking out for her in probably a way that few others are as, as attentive for. Maybe maybe it's because he's a second in command, but it's also because he has feelings for her that he's trying to keep yeah. her, you know, as healthy as she can be. And, and she's, I think- she, she's at the end of her rope, though. And you know, we see as soon as he walks out the door, she doesn't even have the strength to put a, the spoon in her mouth, and she passes out basically. Yeah. Well, I think she's also uh, – she's, she's had to, to show strong face to everyone. You know, much like Griffiths, you know, needed to show, uh, you know, his, you know, other side, you know, to guts, you know. She, you know, she's like she needs someone that that knows, you know, she's not indestructible, you know. Even though to the man she probably looks like she can do anything. She's never tired, never doubts, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. You know, there has to be someone of confidence you can, you know, uh, show your, your true self and your doubts and everything, uh, too. Right. Sorry, I kind of lost where I was for a moment there. Uh, we uh, were, you, you wanted to talk about the transition. You didn't, uh, I don't think you mentioned it. Yeah, it's because it's later. Uh, I, I was, what I was going to say was when we leave the last scene, you know, Guts presumably runs off to find the Falcons. Yeah. But the raiding party finds them first. It's more likely that he trailed the raiding party yeah. to, to find where they were. And then he chose to act during the raid, you know, yeah, to find yeah. them somehow. So it makes sense that he was trailing them. And that's how he was led to this point. So yeah, I, I agree. What, I, 
but that was, I mean, I was going to get that later. But anyway, what I like about this scene, carcass is, you know, he's raising a muck about, you know, why are they even here anymore? You know, what, what's the point of, of surviving the way they are? He has this like, you know, this uh, look of defiance on his face. And yet Rickert points out the hypocrisy that he's still here. You know, why yeah. doesn't he run away? Why doesn't he leave? It's cause he is truly loyal, even though he is kind of, you know, com- basically essentially complaining about their plight in life, but making, making fun almost of their own, of his own plight in life. Yeah. It's, you know, well, I think it fits his character, you know, he, it does. Yeah. He's always been the cynical guy, you know, and, uh, how to say, I wouldn't say self-defeating, but he's got a pretty grim outlook on things. Sure. And so, yeah, it shows here, you know, he's being the voice of dissent, you know, and, uh, you know, the guy, you know, maybe saying what the others won't say or so, you yeah. know, that, you know, they are pretty much, you know, hopeless in a hopeless situation. Right. And, uh, they have to immediately come to action because the raiding party, the raid has just started. So, uh, what I like about Casca is, you know, we, we just saw her exhausted and she immediately grabs her sword and is out the door. Yeah. Sword drawn, you know, seat well, left behind. You know, what I like also just a bit before is, you know, Rickard thinks, you know, that if Gus was here, you know. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, things would be different. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty interesting to see that, you know, that's his legacy that, you know, they're in such a desperate situation, but Rickard thinks to himself, it's Gus was here. Things would, would be different, you know, they, they would have, you know, a chance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, then there's this, you know, this cut to the guard, you know, dozing off and, uh, you know, uh, Silas Chakram, you know, slashing his face. And, uh, yeah, that shows us that, uh, maybe this guy's got a little more up his sleeve than, uh, what was shown at the tournament, you know? True. Yeah. And, and you know, Mira is good about showing, uh, a, a wide range of abilities and tools that Silas uses more than any other character. He has yeah. all these different techniques and, and, um, Battle options, you know? He, yeah, he, he's also very resourceful. We, we get to see it later, you know, during his fight with Guts, but he's the kind of guy that, you know, he's got an answer for every situation. He's very, you know, like, he doesn't get, how to say, it's, it's hard to get him with his back to the wall, you know? Corner, he's always yeah. got an option. So, yeah, that shows his skill as a fighter. And of course, his defeat against Guts apparently did nothing to lower his arrogance as he comments on how it was too easy to get to the camp. Sure, yeah, he he boasts about that, but when he engages with Casca, what I really like about him is he's a pretty honorable guy, you know. He tells her to prepare herself for the the battle, and uh, he's he'd found her, but he's not going to go easy on her because she's a woman. Um, these aren't really great examples of her him being honorable, but he gives her a chance after they fight to withdraw, to surrender, and you know he doesn't. He's not just a pure villain, you know. Yeah. And well, you know, what I like about the battle also is that even though Casca's exhausted and even though he uses a very unconventional, uh, unconventional technique, she's still, you know, like she still feels better than, for example, a guy like Valencia, you know? Like oh, yeah. he blocks, he blocks her sword, he tries, uh, you know, a boot sword, she dodges it, she, you know, fucking, you know, uh, counters at- counterattacks, you know, uh, he makes a fall down, she flips off the ground, you know, it's very dynamic, and even though he's, uh, he's extremely fast and extremely skilled, but she still manages to hold her own, you know, for a good while, and she actually, how to say, uh, she loses because she trips over, uh, over Jose Tree Root. So it's yeah. not like, like, it's not like he defeated her in a combat. And even though she was tired, you know, even exhausted, you know, to the point where she couldn't even eat, uh, you know, she actually fared 
pretty pretty fucking well against him, you know. So I think it also shows, you know, it's you know one of the time we we don't get to see much of her prowess in battle, especially mm-hmm. compared to girls, for example. But it goes to show that she's you know someone to be reckoned with, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I also like the speed uh, of motion uh, Mira is conveying with the multiple depictions of Silat and Casca during the backflips little scene. Yeah, yeah, I agree, it's actually yeah. something we see multiple times moving forward to convey speed, uh, particularly during the Silat fight with against Guts. Just yeah. multiple different you know poses of the of the of the the characters. It's also just cool the the poses he chose. You can feel the weight of Silat's strikes and the way it's shown. It's just a really really dynamic. And yeah. it reminds me actually of the Hill of Swords battle, just because you can really get a sense for the motion in the battle. Yeah, and it's this, uh, this way he has of decomposing each, you know, uh, strike, you know, mm-hmm. and right. super, superimposing them on, you know, on top of each other or next to each other. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I love that. Yeah. And then he eventually, of course, as we say, we pin, he pins Casca, but he gives her an option to, you know, yeah. surrender before he. <laughs> Cuts her off. And, and then the, 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 there's the counting, you know, where you see, you know, what say, the other's trying to get her and he's counting, you know, to, you know, what say, kill her off. And of course, Gus, Gus appears, yeah. you know, majestically by kicking in, <laughs> kicking his head in the back, you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting. Mira's sense of humor here because, yeah, Silat is imposing and deadly. But the way Guts treats him, I almost feel bad for Silat. Like, as, yeah. if, as if he's below him. He just <laughs> yeah. really just fucking just really embarrasses him multiple times, you know? Yeah, pretty much Gus just uh, humiliates him repeatedly, you know? So that's, uh, even though this guy is, like you said, he's pretty, I wouldn't say he's majestic, but yeah, he's not a, she's not just a villain and, uh, He's he's not someone that fucks around, you know. But Gus is just, you know, he's treating him like a buffoon, and you know? so that's actually pretty much what he, you know, calls him a street performer. It's it's very, you know, it's very degrading actually. <laughs> we said earlier about Gus's, uh, you know, after he did this to Silat in the tournament, it was the coolest ever. It's actually this shot with the backlighting here, you yeah. know, Gus with the, the shadow covering his face. Yeah, uh, you know. You know what it reminds me? It's, it's like he's fucking Superman, you know? Yeah. Like, totally. you know, he, he just punched through a wall and he's like, what's going on here? You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this will stop now. <laughs> it, it, it almost seems like dreamlike. It's like, it's like he appeared from nowhere to rescue them in their time of need. You yeah. Know, telling, and basically talking to her <laughs> as if nothing has happened over the, the past year, telling her to pull herself together, giving her this confident smile as if there's nothing, there's no problem here. We got this under control, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and I think, uh, what's, what really, you know, what's, uh, this is because it's shown, uh, it's seen through the eyes of Casca, you know? Like we sure. know how she feels about Gus and like he appears, he truly appears, you know, to save the day. And yeah, this, you know, shot of him, you know, like I said, with the backlight, you know, in, in his, uh, in his back and what he tells her and, you know, that final, you know, smile on his face, the way it's done, the shading and everything, it's very, and then her face, you know, looking up to, uh, you know, to him, it's very, you know, like it's, you know, seen through her eyes and then you know, sure. I, I think that's that's also why it's done like that stylized yeah well like, like you know guts return is like a rallying cry for all the other troops you know they're surprised to see him but carcass is pissed yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> just look on his face the exclamation marks it's funny 
So Guts so, has to re-engage with Silat, of course. Uh, and uh, sorry, before we get into that, we have another interstitial shot as the episode begins of Guts, uh, you know, looking powerful on the battlefield. You know, his return uh, yeah. is a big deal for the Falcons. It says that there's a fire in the background, you know, and he's looking all serious and stuff. And uh, yeah. And then Silat, not, you know, realizes, you know, who he is, you know, the, you know, red leader, you know, the hundred man slayer. And, uh, and yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of a rematch of them. It feels they, they must have fought just earlier that day. And, uh, what I like about Silat is that he, you know, he has an, um, another opportunity to show guts that he's not just some street performer, you know, to prove himself as a worthy fighter. Yeah. So Silas, like, basically the gloves are off is how he feels. Yeah, he can, you know, repay him for that humiliation. So, And now he's, you know, like, he's bringing off his tricks. So, yeah, I, I like that he takes the chakram out from uh, under his, you know, shoulder pads, you know. It also goes to show that he's the kind of guy who's got, you know, three knives in his boots, you know, another two in his underwear, one up his ass, you know. You know, <laughs> you know poison in his mouth. Well, he's got his shit everywhere. He's probably got some stuff, you know, uh, inside his, you know, headgear as well. So... And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, I actually like what, what I like about this fight is that it's one of the rare fights where, you know, how to say, Mura put some emphasis on the weapons used, you know. So you've got, yeah. you know, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, yeah, and they have real life counterparts as well. Yeah, of course, yeah, it's all, you know, real stuff, which makes it all the cooler. So, and what's interesting is that, you know, chakrams are used. Uh, they are not usually, you know, uh, thrown like that. They are usually just, you know, held you know, by, you know, between fingers and thrown, you know, I, I won't say like a frisbee, you know, but in that fashion. And, you know, the fact he like does it with his fingers, it's also a way to do it, but it's more difficult. So, you know, it shows like this guy is not just any guy, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's pretty fucking good at what he does. So, of course, he taunts guts, you know, about the weapons and just, you know, throws them, uh, you know, out in the woods. <laughs> and and you know just says you know he's like he's saying it like Kenshiro like now you're dead you know and putting yeah. his finger putting his finger down you know it's pretty yeah. crazy and uh and it's funny because you know uh, judo tries to to warn him and we see this shot it's pretty dramatic of the things coming at guts and they are itching toward his face you know and you know the, the next shot is uh, one of them just in front of his eye. Mm-hmm. And then Gus' face, I mean, he looks very, I don't know how to say, he looks very unimpressed, you know. And he's actually managed to catch them, you know. There's this reaction shot of Silat, and Gus has actually managed to catch them, you know, between his finger and his sword. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, we thought he was cool before, but he's he's just, you know, uh, you know, I think by this time, Gus is just, you know, uh, a powerhouse, you know, unstoppable, you know, and nothing can just, you know, nothing is too cool for him. Yeah, I think it's also a way not only to show kind of his, you know, how his strength, but it's also he's improved as a warrior. I, I think this is a way of conveying that he's on another level at this point. Yeah. Like this guy, you know, we'll never know what, you know, pre one year ago Guts would do against Silat, but I do think this is a way of just reinforcing how just inhuman Guts has become. Yeah. You know? And he, he has skill and he can also adapt. Like, you know, anything, like, you know, you know, this crazy weapon, you know, he can just, you know, adapt to that. And, uh, you know, even though we can tell it was, you know, a bit of a close call because he's exhaling, you know, mm-hmm. but, yeah. uh, you know, he's just, you know, it's a bit like, you know, his fight with Serpico, you know, uh, with the pillars, a row of pillars. You know, when mm-hmm. Serpico is like, you know, how could you know, you know, I was gonna, you know, hit your hand and go say, well, I didn't know. I just, you know, just reflexes, you know, it's a bit like, mm-hmm. you know. 
big trouble in you know little China, you know, <laughs> so all, all in the reflexes. So you know, and uh, and yeah, Guts is just you know being cool and all, and, and I, I really love that shot where he's trying to you know throw back the chakram <laughs> and they just you know fly off in a you know just you know I mean it fails it fizzles and uh, yeah that's oh, a it's, comical shot you know that's really great it's pure comedy and also I like that Silat's included in the shot it's just the ellipsis you know he's yeah. just like super embarrassed with this guy's making fun yeah. of him <laughs> so yeah and of so course he, then, he upgrades you know the attack yeah. you know takes out these Urumi from his yeah, belt he, he pulls out the Urumis and that's when he gets really serious. And, you know, the Urumis are, you know, I think they are among my favorite weapons in Berserk, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, I, I love the way Mira draws them, you know. Like he does the white thing with, uh, you know, uh, darker background. You know, it's a bit mm-hmm. similar to, you know, the drop of poison in the cup, you know, for Griffith's assassination. You know, it's the same, you know, technique or similar technique used. And uh, I really like, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, and the, the way he just pulls them off and, you know, starts, you know, uh, flapping them at guts, you know. Well, I think that shot, the initial shot we see after he unfurls them with the lighting, I think it's yeah. implying that they're edged, you know, it's showing that the, the sheen of the light from their edge is like glowing, yeah. basically, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're essentially just, you know, long razors. They're just right. razor blades, supple razor blades, you know, very long. So, yeah, so he, he, you know, throws them at Guts, who dodges, but it, you know, uh, let's say gets through his cape. Before, and, before he yeah. attacks, Silat has like this dramatic line about how, you know, their power is like a thunderclap and he's doing this, you know, big, you know, showy description of them. And Guts even says, you even talk like an entertainer. Yeah. So he's he's mocking him even though Silad is really putting on a show basically. Yeah, and and it's true that he's, you know, it's it's something Mira also did with Adam, you know, in a different way, but you know, uh announcing his technique and stuff like that, you know. And would say Mira likes to make fun of that. It's something that you often see, you know, it's a bit of a staple of uh Shonen manga, you know, mm-hmm. which you know the characters saying, oh, I'll use, you know, the one hundred hits, you know, uh Sure. For- from the Firestar or whatever. And so Mira likes to make fun of that. And with Adon, it was, you know, a bit comical because, you know, he ended up looking a bit like a buffoon. But for Silat, it's a, it's a slightly different because Guts make fun of him, but Silat is not, you know, someone to... He's not joking. He's not, you know, uh, what's it, playing around, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we see that when Guts' cape gets, you know, pierced and Guts himself has been cut, you know, on the cheeks, the arms, you know, and... Uh, you know, judo, Casca, you know, they're all, you know, how to say, judo wants to, to get to help Guts and it's Casca who has to, you know, how to say, reining him and, uh, telling him to that, you know, Guts can, uh, handle it by himself. The, the, the look in his face is what pulls her back. She knows him better than the others. She knows yeah. the mood he's in, the atmosphere of his fight. He, she knows what Guts is capable of. So yeah. she knows he's serious about it. Yeah. And so, and yeah, you see this shot, you know, I, I like the way the Urumis are depicted, very fluid, you know, surrounding Silat, you know, and, you know, Jose re- reaching out, you know, Jose striking at guts, you know, from afar. So it's something that he's never, never quite seen before. And that's, it's, it's not, he can't parry it. He can't block mm-hmm. it. And, uh, yeah, we see that, you know, uh, when some guy is hit, you know, like we see a tree trunk that, you know, the back is peeled immediately. We see some guy's face, you know, being, you know, I would say ripped apart. Uh, <laughs> and, and Guts is, you know, I would say Silat is, you know, he's making them turn. It's a bit like a gymnast, you know. There's yeah. a, a discipline in gymnastics where they, they do it like that. So it's a bit like these ribbons. 
mm-hmm. and uh, you know it makes him very hard to what's uh, very hard to block, hard to attack, hard to do everything. Right. But he takes a strong stance with his sword, you know, turns the blade wide, yeah. and Silat thinks he's going to go for one strike, which is, you know, which is true, but <laughs> they just yeah. have this super dramatic shot of Silat, almost like he's being lifted from the ground, uh, but uh, obviously not, like a whirlwind around him, but that yeah. would me. Yeah, I think that's uh, the most, the baddest shot of Silat, you know, yeah. he's like, he's like at the center of a storm, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he's, you know, faces in the dark, you see just his eyes glowing. He's almost supernatural in this scene, you know, in this shot. <clears throat> and of course, Guts uses the uh, sword wind to uh, <laughs> just d- disrupt the flow of the Urmi and yeah. manage to get past them, rushes Silat. Uh, Silat, which is cool, is he immediately, uh, you know, drops the Urmi and goes to his side blades uh, yeah. to, to block Guts' strike. You know, I, I like that shot, you know, when you see the, you know, each Rumi's blade, you know, going at Guts, a bit like tentacles, you know, and you see that close-up shot, very vertical of Guts, you know, and then he's, you know, strike and, of course, uh, the dust, you know, blocking the the blades, you know. Mm-hmm. So I really like that shot, you know, that one page. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you know, the Silat blocks it, but uh, he slices his little blades and he drops them immediately and... Yeah. The fight's over. His mask has been dropped as well. So yeah, it's it saves his life. You know, blocking them saves his life, but he still gets a scar. You know, for his trouble. Yeah, a scar, right. A scar. A, a scar. He carry on. You know, to you know the time. You know, I, actually, you know, I like that guts comments on the fact he's you know he's pretty quick. You know, and mm-hmm. he's pretty good, but yeah, he's still being defeated. The soldiers are tell him you know that they are losing the battle, and uh, yeah. I feel like this, this, the reunion between these two is so long overdue. Uh, you know, we see Silat again in volume 18 and Silat sees him from a distance and recognizes him, you know, and tells us you know, the Tapasa to, to not engage because they have something to do. But also I think he knows, uh, that guts wouldn't have been worth it. Uh, I think he even says something about how their losses would have been too great. Yeah. They they lose something. Yeah. He says something that's a bit enigmatic, but. That rings very true in that, you know, they might win, but, you know, they'll lose something. And right. uh, what's implied is that, you know, a lot of people will be killed, you know. And, sure. uh, yeah, I think it's true. And actually, I hope we get to see a fight, you know, some someday, you know, where Silat and Zutapasa will attack God's group, you know. Or, you know, I think it will be fun to see. I don't know. I, I, I don't I, I want to see them on the same side. I don't want I don't want oh, guys to course. kill to kill I mean, a tapasa and that like to embitter the two or something like that, you know. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like uh, to see you know a fight that it doesn't end in death, you know. Okay, I don't sure. know who it is. Maybe the tapasa fight and you know and Dude, Sia stops them. Another tournament, tournament part two, <laughs> with the, no, uh, guts. The... I, I I want to see guts, you know, strike at uh, the tapasa with the dragon slayer. And one of them blocks it, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he just catches him in his hands. He punches that, it, you know, away from him. Or yeah, like he, he just deviates it or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's that's not very likely to happen. But I'd like that. I'd like to see that. Absolutely. Uh, he tells guts that he'll remember his name. Yeah, yeah. That's also some shots that I really like. Is that you know he's not he's not be you know he doesn't even feel bitter or anything. He doesn't fight to the death. He's just he's really just a mercenary, you know. So yeah, he says he remembers that name. And he leaves, you know, mm. and, and Gus doesn't pursue. That's, uh, then he turns around and looks at Casca and she looks at him. That's, uh, yeah, that's a pretty cool shot. Pretty cool way to, to end the episode. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it kind of leads right into it with Casca, or you know, Guts talking to her, but she doesn't respond back to him. Uh, and Guts immediately is you know surrounded by everyone greeting him back. Uh, what's cool here is you know it's it's as if everyone's picking up where they left off. You know, the second in command, or third in command, whatever the rating captain is, is, is back. You know, suddenly things are re- rejuvenated. You know, the yeah. it's not so it's not so desolate anymore. Yeah, they have this, you know, little thumbs up between judo and guts, you know, just peeping in the background. It's very, you know, Corcus is the only one who's, who's, you know, not, you know, accepting, you know, his return. Of course, yeah. Well, Cask is on the ball and gets everybody to change locations. Uh, and, you know, it seems like Guts is, re- is informed of, of what happened directly after the duel. And from here on out, for a while, he's kind of in disbelief that, he doesn't understand how his actions caused yeah. such a repercussion on Griffith. You know, he thought Griffith was strong enough to survive the defeat, to to not be yeah. so wrecked. You know, it obviously wasn't the case. And there's there's one thing I just want to say is that Casca's pretty cold. You know, when she tells oh yeah to sure fun and such a thing, and you know, like it's you know everybody's you know surprised at this, but Gus, you know, just you know holds uh, moves the conversation on. But yeah, you know, she's she's pretty cold and not welcoming of him. Yeah, I mean, considering the last time Guts was brought up for the Casca, she was clutching his sword, you know, and longing. And then when they're finally re- re- reunited, she gives him this cold look. You know, and something has transpired in her head. Yeah, and um, you, we them. know, we know, like from when he appears, that he's not. She's not. Uh, how to say? She's not unmoved by it. Yeah, yeah, she's not unmoved by it, but she acts cold. You know, and uh, and there's a reason for that. And of course, it culminates, you know, pretty quickly. You know. Sure. So yeah, like you said, Gus is in uh, disbelief at what's happened. He he can't, you know, he can't believe it. And uh, of course, I I think in his position, I, I would be you know, in the same kind of disbelief, you know, given how confident he was. And of course, you know, giving laying the responsibility at the Falcon of disillusion at Gus' feet makes him a little too important for Carcass, and so Carcass denies that that's what happened. Yeah. There's no way Guts could have taken down Griffith like that. And, and it's also, you know, we also see uh, Judo telling Rikat not to, to press the issue because, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty harsh, you know, I think, to put sure. that on, on Guts' account. And of course, yeah, Corcas is not, you know, he's not willing to, to take that, you know, to, to accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's this heroic shot of Casca I was referring to. It's a more dramatic shot. It's actually, it's the, it's, you know, a few panels of what we would be after the shots of the arrows landing. Cause you see she had been so, struck with five, five arrows. So. Yeah. And she, you know, it describes how she has taken charge, but, you know, uh, they do have a plan and it's not just them on the run. They're going to infiltrate Wyndham and rescue Griffith and plans are already in motion, Judo says. Uh, what I really like though, uh, well, Gus talks about where he's been as well, uh, training in the waterfalls. Uh, it's why he didn't hear about, or sorry, with the mountains. It's why he didn't hear about the Falcons because he was away for so long, away from society and civilization. Uh, and Gudo asks if he, he had found what he'd been looking for. And Gus says there was no one answer, but he, he dedicates himself to his sword since that's the only thing that feels natural to him, feels true to his life, which is interesting. Uh, an interesting answer to come back from, you know, not necessarily a dream. Gut doesn't find a dream, but he knows that his sword is important to him, and 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 no. you know, fighting is fighting is his way of life, and so he dedicates himself to that, basically. Yeah, and you know, one thing we didn't really mention is that 
you know, even though they're in really in dire straits, you know, they're, you know, would say they still got uh, a pretty good, you know, outlook. I mean, they're, you know, they're pe- keep keeping, you know, their spirits up, you know, or trying to, and, you know, trying to, to be optimistic, you know. Guts, you know, comments on whole, you know, even though all that happened, you know, things haven't really changed, you know, for the band of the Falcon, you know. I mean, as far as their mood, you know, the spirit of the band, you know, goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're talking about incorporating Guts into their plan and reinstating him as the Raiders captain. But of course, Carcass steps, uh, you know, puts his foot down and says that he won't accept him because he left. Yeah. And Guts accepts that, which I like. I like that. Uh, and Guts isn't bitter about it. He understands, you know, there are consequences to him leaving and he's not part of, you know, their, uh, hierarchy anymore. And so he accepts that, which I like. I like that encounter. Yeah, uh, and, uh, I think what uh, Carcass says also, there's truth to it, you know, like he wasn't there when they needed him the most, you know. Sure, so, yeah. Zero, of course, you know, Gus didn't know, so it's a, it's kind of a moot point, but, you know, it's a, it's a valid, you know, it's it's true, it's true, there's truth in it. I missed a line, uh, talking about, Gus talking about returning to the Falcons, and he said it's nice to ha- have a place that hasn't changed, and what yeah. he was really talking about is having a home, like, this is a yeah. guy that's been on the run, hasn't had a family, hasn't had a place to call home. But to him, the Falcons are home. They are that place that hasn't changed. Yep. Um, Gaston talks about, you know, we already refl- we talked about Gaston having left his business to come and, and, you know, join them. But I don't want to get too bogged down in the details here. You know, these are all important stuff. But, you know, the significant part here is Casca is acting cold towards Guts, but what are, obviously there's much more going on than that. And Judo, Judo tells him that, you know, Casca's been bearing the entire responsibility on her shoulders and that only he can, uh, only Guts can talk to her in that way that she'll yeah. answer and that she'll listen. So something has to happen between the two. And so even yeah. though he goes off and has fun with his friends, you know, he's, he's Guts is looking over his shoulder at Casca regarding her. And as the sun comes up, you know, Guts is waiting for her. The yeah, tree and-, and she she notices that he's looking at her. Also, you know, she turns around, but when he looks at her from afar, she she notices that uh, he's looking. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, also, Casca, you know, I talked. I said what I think the wording I used was that you know she's bared the whole responsibility, but it's not just that. It's like she isn't just the glue of the group, you know, holding them together, maintaining their composure and strategy. She's also She's their tactical leader and she's also their savior. She's she's played so many roles in keeping them alive. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into this in the following section, but Casca was bred as a warrior, but for not, not for this reason. You know, it's not like she dreamed of joining the army or anything like that. You know, she put on these, these tactics. She learned these tactics for Griffith, basically. And, yeah. and she's still fighting for his sake, even though well, all, all seems lost. Well, the thing is, I think she's got, uh, you know, she felt very strongly when Gus first came on, you know, about, you know, the, the band of the Falcons itself, you know. And even though it was big also because it related to Griffiths and uh, his dream and such a thing, I think she genuinely cares for them, you know. She's got, you know, I wouldn't say a motherly, you know, care because that's, 
that's not really supported by the story, but she cares, you know, greatly about the man. And I think, you know, like at this point in the story, she's fully taken on the role of commander. She's, you know, uh, superseded the role of Griffiths, you know. Uh, Griffiths mm-hmm. is, you know, some ideals they want to return to, but she's their leader. She's the one they look up to. She's completely replaced him, you know, as far as being a leader goes. So I think it, it goes to show that her potential as a leader is, you know, uh, very high. Very mm-hmm. simply, it's, it's very high, you know, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, Casca leads him to the waterfall and almost immediately begins engaging him, uh, draws her sword, and Guts notices that she's not just toying around. She has, like, lethal intent with her strikes. And, you know, he tries to talk her down, but uh, obviously she's not working. He doesn't even draw his sword, though, until she takes a, a full, you know, swing, saying that it's everything that's happened is his, is his fault. Which is what yeah. gets him to fully engage in the fight, almost out of surprise as well, or almost like he's hurt by that. What I like yeah. about this scene, uh, independent of what actually ultimately is said, is that, you know, this is how Mira depicts these two warriors having a conversation. You know, this is how they talk. This is how they actually get things off out of their hearts is through battle, through sparring with swords. It's all, They couldn't have a, a, a natural sit down over a campfire. They actually had to get these these feelings out in battle. Yeah. Uh, Guts is wounded by what she says because coming from her, he knows it's true. And, uh, you know, she, during this, during that true revelation that, you know, Griffith was no good without Guts when she stabbed, she actually managed to get a stab in. Yeah. Uh, he can't block it or he doesn't block it out of surprise. Yeah. I, I think he doesn't block it, you know. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a mix of boss. It's, he doesn't try to block it. And, you know, the surprise also, you know, I think the, the two things play a role in that. Whereas before, you know, I mean, during the fight, he mostly toys with her, you know, like he trips her, you know, before he draws his sword. And then, like, she tries even to kick him the balls, you know, but he, nothing works. He's just, you know, too good, too mm-hmm. superior. But yeah, he doesn't block that one, you know, thing. And, uh, and because I think that her cry when she says so is very earnest, you know. Like, you know, yeah. her face, you know, you see it's it's a very earnest, you know, almost a plea, you know. And, uh, yeah, and he, he doesn't block it and then he grabs a sword and doesn't let it go, you know. And uh, that's when all her, I don't know, her hatred or maybe her frenzy stops. Right. It's actually right, right as she's screaming. It seems like we get like a first person shot from Gus' perspective when she's saying that about yeah. Griffith's no good, when yeah. good without you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and actually she's shocked that, uh, he didn't avoid her swing, you know, because she didn't actually mean to, how to say, to stab him, to wound him, you know, like she, she didn't mm-hmm. mean to. She, she was swinging at him, but, uh, she expected him to dodge and block and just, you know, not get it. And so when he actually, she actually wounds him and he blocks the sword, you know, she gets, you know, I wouldn't say a nervous breakdown, but, you know, you see her trembling. She looks, you know, like she's shocked, you know, she's, she's in another state. And that's when, you know, uh, how to say, <clears throat> the talk com- becomes more earnest, uh, I think. Yeah, right. It's kind of like al- almost as if they got the violent part out of the way. Now they can fully yeah. engage. Yeah. And yeah, we, we learned quite a bit. There's, there's a ton of just Casca uh, character development in, in this one scene. It really just opens up her heart to, to guts about what she was feeling almost throughout the whole series that her whole arc uh, is touched on, you know, her talking about how she said she wanted to be Guts sword or Griffith sword, but 
that wasn't fully true. You know, she has feelings as well that go independent of that. And she knows she couldn't, that wasn't attainable. What I like is, uh, this shot of her that says she can't take it anymore. It's a stylized shot. Uh, it's almost like she's drained completely. You know, there's a light, there's a lighter ink to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, her, her expression as well. It's an emotional shot. And there's, there's there's a lot of that happening here. Yeah, she looks she looks drained, you know, like you know, like some someone you know getting pale, you know, being sick, you know. It's a yeah, it's a. I think it's very effective in conveying, you know, uh, what's what's going on with her, you know. First, you know, when guts, you know, lets go of her. So actually, I'm not sure he even lets go or just the blood, you know, makes mm-hmm. it sleepy and she removes the sword. She falls to her knees, and you know, as guts looks down and uh, and yeah, and then she's got this reaction, and uh, she holds a. Some kind of heartfelt, you know, stuff, you know, about what she wanted, you know, being sought, that kind of stuff. We also got her perspective on that night on the stairs. Uh, we also, you know, of course, we've been in guts head space from that moment and we know what that moment meant to him. But for Casca, it meant that it kind of like it, she knew that Griffith was destined for Starlet and that she had feelings for for Griffith that went beyond, you know, her being his sword. So uh, obviously she knew there was no room next to Griffith. For her dream, so she felt that her dream at that time had ended. Yeah, well, the thing is, yeah, she had she had feeling for Griffiths, you know, before that. At that point, at that time, you know, her, she knew that you know it was hopeless, but she still hoped she could be sought. But you know, like when when guts, you know, left, you know, uh, there was you know how to say something clicked in her, you know, and she knew that you know, uh, you know, this wasn't the life you know she was meant you know to have. Right. And uh, talking about how she, you know, she couldn't be what she wanted to be. And so now that Guts has entered her life again, she feels that she can take a step back off of a cliff. Yeah. And end her life because she can't, just can't take. Uh, she's, she's borne the responsibility for so long. She, she, I, think, I think in this exact moment, she sees Guts as basically her way out and just to, into oblivion. But yeah. she, you know. Guts doesn't let that happen, of course. And this transition here, as in the next few pages, it's one of the most subtle things I think that happens in the series. One of the most tender moments in the series. The transition between the, the seriousness of the situation, uh, Guts' reaction to her, uh, Casca crying, her putting his hand, her head in his chest, and it suddenly becomes a tender moment between the two. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that when she, when she's, you know, uh, Hanging off the cliff, you know, we get to see something. We get to see what's in the what's in her mind. That she's not telling guts, but she's thinking to herself, you know. And it's you know the one thing she doesn't tell him is that she loves him. She loves him, right? You know, and that's you know, I, I like how it's done. You know, how she, she she was ready to kill herself without you know admitted you know admitting to him is the truth. And as he grabs her and you know pulls her back, you know, could say you know it's like she's you know. All the venom, all the anger she had, you know, is gone. And now she can, you know, show her true feelings to him. Right. This pan, the panelization here, uh, as they kiss <laughs> or as they court kissing, it's really awesome. Uh, and just really a genuine moment of emotion for, for guts and, I mean, and for Casca, but I mean, I mean, more importantly for guts, I mean, sorry, Casca, but to see guts have this moment this genuine moment it's the, it's it's the only one in the whole series basically you know like yeah. this you know it's a it's a crystallized moment of 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 romance for him yeah you know there's one thing i like is that when he 
pulls her up. You know, even though she's, you know, said, you know, I wouldn't say horrible things to him, but she, she's been very serious. But, you know, he reacts. He's still the same. You know, it's like, you know, when she threw the knife at him, you know, from uh, from the cave, you know. He's just, you know, talking to her like she's a comrade. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's he's not taking any of this, you know, badly or anything like that, you know. Like, he's just uh, accept, accepting it for what it is. And, you know, he reacts, you know. I would say almost it's almost funny his way of reacting to me, you know. Like, just <laughs> yelling at her, I, what I was thinking, you know. So, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. And so it's also almost like an older couple, you know, when someone yeah, ex- does something Yeah, stupid, exactly. You know? It shows also some uh, some complicity, you know, some, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. What's also interesting is is I think Mira makes this scene very nuanced. Ultimately, it's them, you know, joining but or sexually, but it's also she has some apprehension about this, about not just the act, but what this means for her. You know, is this – it almost I almost get the impression at the end of the scene – that neither of them thought that this would blossom into some relationship, but that each of them were treating it as a almost a one night stand. But obviously, it doesn't become that. No, but, I, you know, actually, I don't think so. I think you know, both of them were afraid of uh, that relationship, hmm. and uh, you know, like Guts and Casca, both, you know, how to say, you know, Guts, you know, refuses to believe that you know uh, he could possibly, like Casca, could possibly be interested in a guy like him. You know, when Judo tells him about it before he leaves. The band and uh, Casca herself, you know, like she buried those feelings, you know, mm-hmm. and she, I, I, I got the feelings that she was clinging to, you know, uh, Griffiths and you know what her dream, you know, was, but you know she didn't want this to come to light. You know what I mean? She didn't want, didn't want her love for Gus to come to the surface. But I think by this point, the both have, you know, pretty deep feelings for each other. I, I, I don't think there's really, you know. I don't know about this what night dancing, but I, I don't think they really sort of it like that. I, I guess I mean I was I think Casca's apprehensive about what this might what the, what might happen after this, and and also guts at the end after he you know un, unintentionally assaults Casca, you know he tells her he'll walk away from this as if it's never happened. You know he's he's yeah. he's willing to throw it, to throw it all aside. You know even even if that would mean burying his feelings. Anyway. Um, you know, I don't think Mira holds back from all the different panels here, you know, showing it multiple different angles and positions, but it's different from Charlotte and, 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 and Griffiths because it's, it's almost all in, uh, there's no, there's no crazy exaggerated motions or it also leads into it quite a bit more, you know. It, yeah, it's not an assault. <laughs> I think I think it's very tender, you know, uh, at first it's very intimate. It's more intimate, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, also, uh, like how, Kyle Kalkaska is self-conscious of her body when, before they yeah. start, but Guts embraces it and tells her that, you know, they're basically two warriors. They, mm. they each have their scars, but that, that also brings them closer together. Yeah, it's what I was going to say. I, I think this is also a much more personal experience where Kalkaska yeah. is self-conscious. Guts is the one who remarks on her scars and it makes her self-conscious, but Guts, you know, you know, I, I think, you know, he doesn't say so, but, you know, I think it's clear to him that, you know, she, she's beautiful, you know, because of that, you know, in spite of that. And, you know, she's she's more beautiful to him than uh, a court lady on Princess Charles or something like that. You know, he's, he's yeah. a kind of stuff. He doesn't say so a lot, but it's implied, it transpires through the character. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, she doesn't say it and doesn't need to be said, but the two suit themselves, the two complement each other so well. Yeah. Know, both so just, warriors, so their just, mentality, their outlook, their... 
involvement in their experiences. They're all tied together, you know. Yeah, they are meant. They're pretty much meant for for each other, you know. At that point, it's uh, it's clear they are just, you know, like they're meant for each other. And as Guts begins losing himself in the moment, he sees himself in Casca's face. The the scar left on that night comes back uh, and haunts him. Yeah, these feelings and memories he's had for all this time just come back suddenly during this moment. And it made me wonder as I was thinking about it, and I I feel like what it is, like why why this trigger is it is it the the sexual nature of it? And I don't, I don't necessarily think so. I think it's these feelings of apprehension, this 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 intimacy, this feeling yeah. of int- intimacy uh, comes back and haunts. Yeah, him. I I think it's a it's a physical intimacy. Just mm-hmm. very simply, guts. You know, as we know, he didn't like to be touched by anyone. And, uh, and of course, at this point, well, he, he's the one touching Casca and she's touching him. And I think the, the physical intimacy is bringing it in him, you know, like you see his eyes, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's one shot where his eyes become a bit, you know, you know, glassy, you know, like he's looking, you know, it's a bit like Griffiths, you know, he's not really looking at her. He's just got his very serious face, you know, and he starts, you know, getting, you know, uh, you know, how to say more, you know, violent, I would say, you know, more, you know. Well, sure. He puts hand on her, so. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, he's just, you know, like he's trusting, you know, strongly, you know, to, to, oh, oh sorry, before the, before the big yeah. transition. And, and yet, then you see, you know, like as, you know, it keeps going, you see he's got this, you know, white lights, you know, this kind of, you know, sparks of lights, you know, right. as his mind, you know, wanders and, you know, goes back, you know, like he's, you know, face as a kid, you know, he's superimposed on top of Casca's, you know, on the tree and then, you know, he's back. To being, you know, taken over by Donovan and he's that huge, you know, page. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's uh, it's very well executed, and it it shows, you know, how the trauma comes back to him, you know, right at once. It's very, it's a very powerful shot to me, you know, and uh, and that's when he stops, you know, like you know, of course he remembers Gambino, you know, all that stuff, and then he's just, you know, he stops and he starts, you know, grabbing her throat, you know. I don't know the, the depictions are really the, the choices of the depictions are fascinating to me, particularly Gambino, yeah. Gambino's. His face from the night that he was killed, superimposed over the the, the tree, the yeah. hanging tree, Say, and also you know, he should have died, you know, and uh, yeah, and he, guts, guts remembering that moment from his dream in his eyes as surrounding as this effect, like the two thousand one like space journey, like you know, yeah. hyperspace look. That's really cool, just uh, dreamlike imagery. Yeah, and yeah, and, uh, uh, obviously guts puts his, uh, you know. It looks like he's about to begin choking Casca because he yeah. sees himself and her. And yeah, what I like about this following scene, you know, we've just discussed that, but um, uh, it's I'm jumping I'm a little bit far ahead. But if you look at Guts's face throughout this whole scenario, he has childlike expressions on his face, as if it's you know, as if he's emulating himself as a child. And the look yeah. on his face, it's it's I don't know how to describe it, but <laughs> the right but the right wording into it. But there's a couple different moments, uh, particularly. Uh, after uh, he calls Gambino his father, the look on his face is very childlike. You know, there, there's no, there's no getting around it. There's, it's not. I don't think it's an accident that he was drawn that way. He's, 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 he's feeling these emotions and these memories that he's bottled up since that time that he hasn't yeah. actually poured out or even processed since that yeah. time. Uh, did did we talk about you know uh, how to say? I think we skipped uh, a bit fast over the the transition page. You know. That's his guts, you know, uh, you know, his guts as a kid with a sword, you know, drawing a line from the tree, you know, the hanging tree, you know, with stuff on the side. Yeah, we, we just skipped right past it. I mean, I, I didn't mean to skip past it. I was trying to get, anyway, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, well, why is I, I find it, uh, I, find, I think it's a pretty interesting, you know, transition page. It's again, uh, a thing we don't get to see, uh, often in the series, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's very symbolic, you know, there's, you know, stuff, you know, symbolizing the, the skull knight, you know, a behirit, you know, uh, you know, a wing and a sword, you know, that symbolizes the bend of the, the falcon, which is, you know, losing feathers. And there's, you know, one that's the horn of, and the wing of Zod, you know, and, uh, you see guys going from that. So I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's an interesting illustration. It's very very symbolic, you know, and I think it uh, holds it underlines, you know, God's journey through mm-hmm. life, you know, so far, you know, in a bit of a symbolic way. Yeah, it's establishing the history and all these different imagery. But also, what's interesting is the skull knight and the vines are the only thing that superimposes it. All the others yeah. are cut, cutaways, but that one somehow attached to it. You know, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be dorky about it, if that means anything, but it's interesting that that's the one that's different. Yeah, I, I agree. It crosses over. It's the only one. I think, you know, like, it's not necessarily dorky to remarks on that, you know, like, it's done for a reason. Mm-hmm. It, uh, yeah. I mean, it could be something as simple as they share a, a history of being the struggler or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, don't it know. could also mean, you know, uh, it could also mean that, you know, Skullnight had a hand, you know, in maybe shake, shaping things up or that he had a, an impact, you know, or will have an impact or who sure. knows. And there's also one thing is that you see the, the vines, you know, uh, for the Skull Knight are pretty long. So it could imply, if you put it in parallel with the, the path of Guts that is, you know, drawn by Guts' sword, you know, it, the two can be compared, you know. Sure, yeah. That's what you mean. So, yeah, it's just symbolic interpretation at this point. So it's not very. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, Guts is back in that nightmarish thing with Donovan and the tree. And, you know, Gambino has a, has a nightmare with a dog, you know, with, uh, you know, Guts' mother's face, you know, uh, on it, you know. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty nightmarish, you know, and you see Guts, you know, his hands, but it's, it's you know, Donovan's eyes or, you know, I don't know, at least maybe Gambino's eyes, his, those dark eyes, you know, trying to grab him, his throat. It's Donovan, then, I'm sure. Yeah, and then it's, uh, it's, you know, Guts, you know, who's grabbing himself, and right. then he, how to say, he gets back to the, to reality and just, you know, uh, how to say, let's Casca go, you know, after she, she, she how to say, she please, you know, she says right. his name. Right. Um, what's interesting here is, is, you know, Guts has told no one anything about his childhood, and she almost gets, you know, the full breakdown of what happened between him you know, him being molested, uh, and, and his father figure, him, he, him killing Gambino. And he, she actually gets confused and he like corrects her like, no, Gambino was different. You know, he's, he's really just pouring himself out here immediately after yeah. sex. You know, chicks don't like this. Don't do this. This is not good advice to take. If you are having your first sexual encounter, don't just do this. Uh, if you're want some advice, but <laughs> works on Casca cause she's a fictional character. And she is well, a, you know, so. she, she knows, you know, what, you know, damage is. And, uh, you know, I think it also explains some things about Gus to her, you know. Like, sure. You know, who he was before. It's, you know, maybe, it, you know, it, you know, also makes things click for her in her head, you know. And, you know, shows us that Gus is you know, a complex character, you know. It also reminds her to the readers that Gus is a complex character, you know. And, you know, one thing I find interesting is that, you know, when after he's done that, you know, the first thing he says about Gambino, you know, like he's mm-hmm. saying he didn't want to kill Gambino. So, you know, like he's not even apologizing to Casca, you know, he's still, you know, in his mind, you know, talking about, you know, what happened to him. Right. So, yeah. yeah. He's trying to rationalize it in his head or explain his actions in his head. And, uh, and yeah, of course he explains things to Casca and she's just, you know, 
witness to that. She just, you know, takes it all, you know, takes it all in. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's also very touching because after Casca, you know, poured her heart to guts, you know, about Griffiths, about what she wanted, about, you know, how her dream, you know, was empty and hollow and, you know, died long ago and she has nothing left to live for or whatever. And, you know, it's Guts turn to, you know, also, you know, tell her about, you know, his trauma. And she, she had already, you know, told him about her, you know, childhood and what she endured. And now, you know, it's, uh, her turn to be there for him. Right. Guts focuses on Gambino wondering why is this happening now? All these things, you know, when he was reflecting on his past and himself over the past year in training, he didn't think about it once he says, but yeah. now suddenly it comes back. Obviously we've already discussed it's a physical intimacy, um, opening up these feelings that yeah. he's bottled up. And I like, you know, like, like I like that he's shown to be vulnerable in that, in that point, you know, like you said, you know, this is not a, a thing to do during your first sexual encounter and he yeah. himself comments on that, you know, saying like, well, he just fucked up, you know, and, uh, yeah, you see him crying and, uh, I think it's also an important part to see him like that, to see Casca's, you know, uh, how to say empathy for him, you know, like he just, you know, like you said, he wants to just let it go and, you know, uh, not tell anyone about this. Right. But she's, she's the one that, you know, goes for him, you know, and uh, comforts him in that, in that, you know, moment. Right. Um, you know, he told, yeah, like, like you said, he's, he's trying to walk away from it. He's giving her an out. He's saying, you know, if you want to, uh, say forget it because of this, you know, then I would understand, which I think is interesting. Uh, but, you know, obviously she doesn't do that. She embraces him, throws off the cloak that she gave him and holds him. Uh, she says that, uh, he's always bleeding for her. He's always taking wounds for her, which is yeah. a reflection on all the times that Guts is, Taken an arrow, taken a hit, guarded her all these times, protected, saved her from the cliff twice now, you know, brought her back from death. Yeah. And now this is something she can do for him. I actually like, you know, I think the scene, uh, what she, what she does, she leaks the wound, you know, she gave him and what she tells him, you know, uh, about, you know, also wanting a scar, you know, right. from him. I think that's, that's, uh, one of the most, you know, central, you know, thing in the series, you know. Uh, yeah, just, it's, uh, it strikes me as a little creepy still personally, just reading it. Uh, I, I get what Mira is going for. I guess it's just a personal thing. I'm a little creeped out by it. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, it, uh, I think it's befitting of, uh, of the characters, you know, like, you know, sure. like you said earlier, they're warriors, you know, of course. And, uh, and, you know, I think it's, uh, it's fitting, it's fitting for them. You know, I, 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 I don't really, I really don't get that by act. I'm surprised you, you said so, but, uh, you know, to each his own, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I find it very essential. I, I think it's one of the most, you know, central things in the series. And I think it's a, it's a pretty, you know, how to say, it's very intimate and a very personal scene. And, uh, I think it's a very beautiful scene. Sure. And, uh, what I like about this is now that they've already gone, they've kind of like, they both opened up at this point. They both know each other's past, but they still, they still re-engage and they're still, it's it's like it's like their second time coming together is more pure because the first time was fraught with anxieties and fears and then ultimately resulted in violence. The second time they go at it, it's more romantic. It's more pure, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's more tender. And you know, I like you know Casca's uh, you know thoughts. You know the fact that you know she can also bring something to guts. You know, so yeah. It's uh yeah it's it's very beautiful and that scene of them you know the two of them you know uh, lying you know on uh, on the floor you know kissing it's a uh, yeah it's a uh, it's very beautiful I think you know I've all yeah. I've seen 
She actually says, I will, I will change, is what she says before yeah. they kiss again. Um, yeah, indeed, yeah. And maybe she, her place is here with Guts. It's a, yeah, it, I mean, it, it lays the groundwork for them as a couple moving forward. But their time together is so short. The yeah. time together is week, a matter of days or weeks. I can't remember what the t- actual time difference is between this and the eclipse, but it's super short. Yeah, it's very, it's very short. And, um, yeah, I, I like, you know, the final, final scene for that episode is very, you know, uh, how to say, it's, it's very, you know, telling and very beautiful. And actually, final scene for the episode and for the volume is, you know, guts remembering, you know, himself as a kid, you know, putting the, you know, the, you know, let's say cream, you know, on his nose. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it symbolizes, you know, his childhood perfectly. The whole thing, you know, like this scene, that mirror shows this scene, you know, in particular is very, very telling. It's a, it's a very emotional scene to me, emotional scene to me. And uh, I think it shows how to say that these wounds, you know, are, are, you know, healing finally, you know, like much like, you know, Guts put that cream on his nose and it healed the wound, you know, from uh, you know, Gambino's sword. You know, uh, this, you know, his love with Casca, you know, for Casca is, you know, healing, you know, uh, the wound left by Donovan, you know, the rape of Donovan and the death of Gambino so long ago, you know. Wow. So, that was yeah. really well done, man. I I had not put that together. See, to me, it was merely an association of a happy moment from his childhood, remembering the happiness of his childhood and the happiness of this. But that's a, that's a merely a superficial reading of what's happening. I think yours is right on the money. That's great. Well, uh, thanks. Good work. And that closes out the volume for a really long reread. So thank you for tuning in, guys. And uh, we'll be back for volume 10 or 336, whichever happens first. We don't know at this point. So uh, we're still waiting to see the release date sometime in summer of this year. So we will be back uh, when there is something to talk about. But thanks for joining in. As always, see you guys later. See you.